Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hello, good evening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's enough. Thank you. Bill, you look, you look extraordinarily pensive tonight. What does that mean, pensive? It means in deep thought. Um, I was going to show, well, the reason I was, I was trying to pull up on my screen some of these new um, uh, thumbnails that we've created for YouTube to show some of our some of our followers and fans. Bill has been going absolutely crazy in a brilliant way with the art the art on the thumbnails they've been previously released but he went back and now he's using is it ai to generate some thumbnails that are much superior to what we had before i think yeah so in the last maybe two three weeks we've gone out of our way to try to uh improve the visual look of our youtube channel and folks by As the way opposed to the non-visual look well yeah then whatever well, i guess so um <laughs> If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, I would highly suggest folks that you subscribe to the channel. You can just go uh, on YouTube, look up Mormon Discussion Incorporated, INC, and uh, just go on the channel and subscribe. You're probably watching it from there right now, but folks, we'd love to have you as subscribers. The other thing too, let me grab it here really quick. I'm going to put it, um, whoop, let's see here. Pensive again. Oh, I know. It's a little bit of silence here. So I'm going to put it in the comments. This is, if you want to subscribe to the mailing list of Mormon Discussion, we don't send a ton of stuff. We're not trying to overwhelm you. Once every, uh, you know, three months or so, we send kind of a mass email out to everybody, <clears throat> uh, thanking donors and letting folks know what the, the cool episode is that's coming up on one of our shows. So I did send that to you, but I'll put up here on the screen, RFM. Let me, um, so... Look at this. So, Ghost of Homophobia Past. I know? love that. <clears throat> and what, great, what a great episode. That's from December of 2016 or something. Yeah. The, um, and I'm having a lot of fun with this. We hired somebody. We're paying them a few bucks to, to redo our header on our YouTube channel. They're also helping us with some of the thumbnails. But I've been creating most of them. And I'll show you here some other ones. Who's By the way, can you go back to that last one? Because did they intentionally misspell homophobia? Oh, I, that's me. I did that. So I'll have to fix it. No biggie. I'll fix that tonight. Uh, Homophobia. <laughs> I thought <laughs> it was being intentionally no, no, clever. No, it was being no, unintentionally no, clever. Not at all. Unintentionally clever. So if uh, I'm ever clever, it's un unintentional. Uh, nothing ever gets past you, does it? Uh, who is an apostasy? I, I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't know, would you? You wouldn't know <laughs> what gets not get, get past you. <laughs> Who's an apostasy? The apostates or the church? You've got Ooh. Jesus there having a good time. Here's one, mm. Rock Waterman Unplugged, you know? So uh, he's a good-looking man, I'll tell you that. He is. He looks like Dennis Weaver from his McLeod days. There you go. Um, the Rules of Evidence, that's part one. 
this was our conversation with Lindsay Hansen Park, The Troubling Aspects of Joseph Smith's Polygamy. This is one that I did use, the artificial intelligence. And it always – the one – the program I use – intentionally always leaves like little flaws. So if you look at these folks mouths, sometimes it comes out perfect, but uh, those mouths are not normal looking, but uh, so here's, these, here's a so good those, one. Okay. Wait a second. I do want to talk about this one with the, um, the grapefruits, but it, yeah. the one before, are you saying <laughs> that those women, the, the five women behind Joseph that they, and Helen are Markin, not real don't women. Forget, don't forget young little 14 year old or 12, yeah, 14 year old Helen Mark Kimball there. Right. Now, I've seen that picture before. Is that AI yeah. generated as well? No. Joseph Smith and Helen Marr were created by, I don't know, Jonathan Streeter or somebody. Okay. But the other five, those are, are artificial all, intelligence. Yeah. Those are not real women. Those are not real women. And I'm, and I'm not going to say much, but yeah, those are not real. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, and then this was one of my favorites. Why is that one of your favorites? I don't know. It's just, it's provocative. It's called Fair Mormon and T-I-T-S. Yeah. And there is a woman who's holding, hmm, grapefruits. it looks like grapefruits. Yeah, they are. And she's holding them. She doesn't have her shirt on, but she's holding them in place of what what would be there. Uh, and then I thought I had, maybe I had one last one. Oh, no, no, that's not it. That's nothing. I'm I'm sorry. I don't know where that one came from. Wait a second. What is that? <laughs> that this was me taking Kwaku, uh, Cardinellis, and Brad Whitbeck, and I made a transparent background behind them. And then I put them on the kitty ride at the park. <laughs> well, you know, you can put them at a shooting gallery for all of that because they're protected. Yeah, they've got their vest on the outside, which is the best place to have it. Yes. That way, that the way you know exactly you know, where, you know where you want to shoot if you want to hurt them. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. Uh, so there's all of our fun for the night. Uh, probably not, but to, at least to get us started. Well, absolutely. We've got a fantastic guest on tonight's show. And this is a man who needs no introduction, so I'm not even going to introduce him. Just bring him on. All right, here we go. It's Jim Bennett. With no introduction. Jim, Jim how are you? I'm doing well. How are, how are both of you? Excellent, excellent, my friend. Glad I'm great. I'm glad they're allowing you to podcast from inside the jail now. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm, so I'm up in my attic because this is where my wife says I will bother people the least. It's also where the asbestos insulation is, isn't it? It is. It's actually, <laughs> I have twin boys, and this is their room. And yeah. I'm glad you cannot see the floor because it's a little bit disturbing in terms of how messy it is. Mm. But, so, so all you can see is this nondescript background and, of course, John, Paul, George, and Ringo uh, there in the corner. So, Well, it is so great that you're here. Jim, we're going to talk to you about your recent visits to... Midnight Mormons, because not this past weekend, but the weekend before you made one, not one, but two correct appearances on their show. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. The first appearance was less problematic than the second. Yeah. So we're going to be playing clips from that, and then we'll oh. be talking about it. This is going to be a lot of fun. By the way, everybody, I want you to know there is a key point that we're going to be making in tonight's show. And we're going to be having a lot of fun around it. But when we get to that key point, I'll be pointing it out just in case you don't recognize it. I think it'll be pretty obvious. But the first thing I want to talk about is this clip. Now, was it Saturday and then Sunday you showed up on Midnight Mormons or was it Friday and Sunday? Uh, one or the other. I, 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 <laughs> one or the other. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the second one was on a Sunday night. 
Uh, I know the second one was on a Sunday night. That's the one everybody knows about. Yeah, it's the I other one I was confused. I about. don't. I don't remember if that was Friday or if that was Saturday. I think it was Saturday. I think it was twenty four hours between. The yeah. Two. So let's say it was Saturday and Sunday. So on the Saturday episode, we've got a clip here, and I'm going to need to find out your thoughts on this, Jim. Okay. Do we have that ready to go, Bill? So this or is timestamps uh, six minutes and fifty five seconds. Correct. Well, let me just double check since you ask so nicely. Uh, 6.55 to 8.48. Yes, Cardin Ellis seems to be in a mood to upbraid you, Jim, about your activities in your private life. Okay, here we go. Let me make sure it's unmuted. There he is. Jim, about how he... Oop, let me do one more thing. I'm going to change this over to the roadcaster. Yeah, I love that this was the trial of Jim Bennett. That's the name of it. That's good. Yep. Thanks. For anybody who wants to go back and watch this in its entirety, it is called The Trial of Jim Bennett. It, it is up there in the upper left-hand corner. So this is Carden, and he's talking to you. This is before you got relegated to the attic, I guess, because you got right. books behind you here. Yeah, that's. Uh, but I'm not mirroring the image. Never mind. But yes, <laughs> that's, that's my cooler look than this one. Okay, here we go. Now I can't hear Cardin. This is probably a better way to watch it. Hey, uh, was, was there no sound, RFM? No sound. Hmm. Let me do something else. Let me try. Yeah, the Stop first time screen. you started playing that and then you stopped, there was sound. Yeah, let me try here. Yeah. Screen, system audio, share. Yeah, that's because it was playing over my speaker, but let's uh, 6.55, right? Well, once again. Yeah, six fifty-five to eight forty-six. Okay, here we go. Let's see if see if this works. Anything? I can't see video either. Okay. Um. Yeah, yeah. I gotta put. Oh, the video I gotta put on. But that. Let's try this. One <laughs> of the things that he did recently it was it was just frustrating. Any sound? Let's dig it out here. We're all family, right? Was I saw you return to you know Bill Real and RFM show. Uh, though you had said that you felt like your empathy had been weaponized previously by uh, those guys and then had a conversation in which I felt like you kind of you're, you're, you're a diplomatic person and, and, and diplomats are willing to cede ground in order to establish some kind of compromise and reach some kind of agreement, which I think is noble. But when you cede ground with people who never cede ground repetitively, we just end up ceding ground to people that hate us. And I feel like you kind of uh, you, you kind of validated a false narrative, I feel, that the church is just one big, fat, homophobic institution, and you're not willing to call them out publicly for fear of losing your spot in uh, in Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which is the soundbite that I would run with if I were an anti-Mormon, just so I could say, see, even Jim Bennett, even the, the actives agree with our false narrative, even though we have endless podcasts with Timber Hardware and Skyler and other people that say, the exact opposite who are actually gay members of the church. So is it possible, Jim, you think that maybe in the modern day, our desire to be diplomatic can be weaponized against us? Well, that's, that's a question. That's a bit of a non sequitur from the setup that you gave. Oh, okay. I mean, you, you, you were, you were upset that I went on RFM and bill real after I'd expressed my frustration with Bill Real. Oh, that did surprise uh, me, yeah. Well, it, but it's worth noting that I didn't go on with Bill Real. I went on with RFM only. 
Oh, Bill really? Reel was not present in that. And ah. Bill Reel and I have actually had a falling out since then. I mean, I was very frustrated with my initial conversations with Bill Reel for the reasons you described. I felt every time I said, you have a valid point of view, he took that as, aha, you've given up ground. You're throwing the church under the bus. Look, I won the debate. Yeah. When in fact we weren't debating, or at least I wasn't debating in my mind, and you the fact that he set that agenda before the the program and didn't tell me, and then after the fact went around talking about it as a debate when that's not what it was, I felt that he had dealt with me entirely in bad faith, and I've I've said that repeatedly. I said that the first time I came on and talked to you about my conversation. I, I remember that. Yeah. And so this conversation that you're talking about was a conversation one on one. Well, I, they also had their producer on. I can't remember her name. Maven. But, uh, Sorry, Maven. One-on-one, -on -one essentially, <laughs> with me sense. and RFM. And Bill Reel was nowhere to be found. Uh, ah. since, that, since that, Bill Reel, uh, after the, the decision against the church. And just FYI, you've got a timestamp ending at 846, but we're past that at this point. Do you want to keep going? Oh, my going? gosh. We went way past it. No, I don't want to keep going, actually. We've got another clip that we'll get to. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I can't tell you how delightful it is to watch this exchange from 10 days ago when I've got Bill and you, Jim, on the same, whatever you call this, the same screen watching it. Yeah. Well, and I want to say, I want to say publicly that I'm in a different place 10 days later than I was 10 days ago. Uh, when you approached me, RFM, oh, about coming on, I said, Jim, I'm uncomfortable. Oh, can you Jim, not hear yes. Jim, it's okay, because I want to get into this after the next clip, because that's oh, really okay. going to throw it into sharp focus. The thing that really so shocked me about this is that Cardin, with his very long kind of question, where he's upbraiding you for coming on the show with me and Bill, it's just that he hadn't even watched the show. Yeah, he, he clearly... he. I mean, and he was framing it in terms of homophobia, which I don't think we even discussed at all last time I was on your show. Uh, we, I mean, I may have, I don't remember. Maybe I didn't watch the show. But it was just sort of this scattered, how dare you talk to these people? <laughs> you know, how dare you uh, have any kinds of conversations? And, you know, in light of, and, I, and we're going to get into this, I think, later on in this show, but in light of what's recently happened with Patrick Mason, and and all of that kind of thing, it it's it's very clear to me that that Cardin and the Midnight Mormons and and really a lot of people uh, inside the church and who consider themselves defenders of the church have only one template to apply to anybody outside the church, and that's the Korahor template. Everybody who leaves the church, everybody who's critical of the church is Korahor, an antichrist who secretly knows the church is true, but has made a deal with the devil to tear it down anyway. And and I think that's how they see both of you. And and so every time I talk to them, it's always, why have you talked to John DeLynn? Why have you talked to RFM? Why have you talked to Bill Real? Don't you know these people are the worst human beings on the face of the earth, and they're all Korahors, and you shouldn't even give them the time of day. So I think that's kind of what was happening there. And just just to note, you make mention that you don't think they paid close attention to the actual conversation that you had on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon last time. Well, and I'll yeah, just they say didn't, that they didn't know that you were not there. 
So they never watched no. it. And no, and that's did. not the Brad has the same surprise look on his face. It's kind of a common look for Brad to have on his face is this surprise look. But yeah. Brad has the same surprise look on his face that Cardin does, that you were not there on Mormonism Live when Bill showed up. Right. And and this isn't the first time this has happened. If you remember when we did the Steel Man Straw Man episode, RFM, um, the Midnight Mormons created a straw man argument around spiritual experiences, what I was making, right? And then we did a response where we did the episode called uh, Steel Man versus Straw Man. And then they did a response to that, but all they did was say their original argument again. It was this, it was as if they had not watched the episode at all. And like Jim mentioned, I also agree that these guys don't seem to really do their homework. They seem to wait for somebody to tell them something, and then they repeat it as if they participated in the watching of the thing, but they actually don't watch it because you can tell by the words they use that they weren't they weren't observers to it. Yeah, it appears that show prep for Midnight Mormons does not include watching stuff or reading stuff they're going to comment on. No. Well, I, I do want to point out that, that uh, Cardin takes his responsibilities as the master of ceremonies very seriously. And he does quite a bit of prep. He's got all of the technology to do all of this. And I think he's really quite talented in terms of his ability to keep the conversation going. Uh, so I, I don't think it's just that they're not interested in prepping. I think it's that they're just not willing to pay any attention to anybody that they see as a Korahor. Mm -hmm. Great point. Yes, it is. So, or can we go to the next clip? And then I want you to tell this story because this next clip is going to be incredible. You're going to be wondering why after this next clip, Jim Bennett is here on the show on Mormonism Live tonight. And this is timestamp 10 minutes and 36 seconds. Yes, sir. To 11, 10. So this is less than a minute. So uh, my frustration with Bill Reel is, is, I think, a whole lot more than yours. And uh, and this last conversation did not involve Bill Real, and unless something drastic changes, I don't foresee any future conversations with Bill Real. Hmm. Although I continue to be friendly with RFM, we exchange texts every once in a while. For some reason, he thinks it's fun to text me during conference <laughs> while I'm sitting in the choir loft, and that makes him feel like a big deal that somebody in the choir loft is texting him back. That's funny. Uh, but, oh, I will uh, say I've been frustrated. Like we. That was it, Bill. Okay. Yep. So, Jim, do we get to talk about what it was that we actually texted back and forth? It, I, I can't even remember what it was. And all I know is that all I texted you back, I mean, I was using my Apple Watch because I, I can't pull out my phone up there. And so I got your text, and I think I just texted back a reaction of ha-ha. That is exactly correct, sir. Yeah. And this is not from last conference, but the conference before, right. when there was just a minor hubbub made about this sort of tall black bar stool that President Nelson was using. Oh, right. Uh, bar stools pejorative. You know what I mean? It's a tall black chair and it was black. So it's fading in. It's not going to be attracting a lot of attention. Somebody got a side shot of it and there was this huge chair and I had just texted you knowing that you would be singing in the choir and be back there. I think I said, I dare you to pull out that chair from under President Nelson when he's not looking. Yeah, so maybe a ha-ha is, is probably to apostate to have texted back to you, but that's pretty much all I could muster. Yes, so, well, it was a ha-ha. It wasn't a thumbs down. No, it was not an exclamation no. point. It wasn't a question mark. It was a ha-ha. Well, there you go. Well, it, it was interesting because that conference, 
I, I watched that conference, and like a lot of people thought, it, it may very well have been President Nelson's last conference. He was looking very, very so frail. Uh, he was looking very frail. He was moving very slowly. Uh, and he was sitting down to give his speech. And, and his last speak, talk, you know, right at the end of the conference, he said, may God be with you till we meet again. And he burst into tears. And it felt very, very much like a farewell. Which, so it was very surprising uh, in, in a delightful way for me anyway, uh, to see him this last conference and he, he was a whole lot more vigorous. He wasn't sitting down and he gave what I consider to be the, the talk of his life, the best talk he's ever given. And one of the best talks I've ever heard in conference. Right. Well, the other part from that clip that you, we just played, and this is the part I want to talk about 10 days ago, you're saying, unless something drastic happens, Jim Bennett, you're not going to be on the show with Bill Real, and yet here you are here on the I show am. with Bill Real. How does this happen? This is a an incredible turn of events. Well, I have you to thank for for much of it, but I have Bill to thank for most of it. Uh, well, let's start with me. Well, we'll start with you. So, so when you invited me on the show, I said, "Is Bill Real going to be there?" And and you said, "Yes, he is." And I said, "Well, I I." I need to get some things straightened out with Bill before I come on the show because I've, I have a bone to pick with Bill. And, uh, and you, I mean, at one point you were, you, I mean, you, so you were trying to coordinate getting us together. And what was it says? You said, you know, putting together a superpower summit is really difficult or something in one of your texts. Yes. And, shuttle uh, diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. Shuttle diplomacy. Uh, but, uh, but Bill and I had had a really good and productive phone conversation, and uh, I told him what my frustrations were. I don't know if we want to hash all that out again. I don't know if that's of interest to anybody else. No, I think I don't know, but I think it's of note. Um, obviously, RFM reached out and said, "Hey, I'd like to have Jim Bennett on the show," and I knew that you had a grudge, fair reasonably enough, because I think you and I come to. Th- our interactions with very different values. And uh, in my conversation with RFM, I said, look, I've got no problem reaching out to Jim. I think the world of Jim Bennett, I just disagree with him in how he comes to a situation and how I come to a situation. And it's, it's bumped. We bumped into each other. And so I uh, picked up the phone and I, I gave you a phone call and we had, I was actually hoping we would put it off to another moment where we could have like a face to face, but we just, you know, over the phone, probably, an hour, hour and a half, maybe something like that. Yep. And we had a lengthy conversation where both of us shared what we were, what we were feeling in those situations, what we were thinking in those situations, why we came to the situation the way we did. And, um, essentially the conversation ended with me expressing that I now understand your situation and how you feel about things. And I'm going to do my very best to not uh, disrupt you in the ways that I have in the past. Well, and, and I was very appreciative of how open you were, how, how, um, how willing you were and vulnerable you were to, you know, accept the validity of, 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 of the issues I was raising. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I said to you at the end of that, and I want to say publicly here is that, uh, my life has been immeasurably blessed by my interaction with Bill Real. uh, going, you know, I wrote that CES letter reply and that went viral, but I didn't go viral. 
You know, it was the reply that was there. Me as a personality wasn't anything. And it was Bill that was willing to have those 14 hours of conversations with me uh, that really sort of put me into this world where I'm having conversations, not just with you, but also with Midnight Mormons and also, you know, with, with people all over the spectrum. And it's introduced me into a world of bridge building. At least I want to be bridge building. It, it, it has introduced me. Um, when I wrote the CES letter reply, uh, I was deluged with very kind messages from people within the church who said, thank you so much. You have, uh, you have helped me stay. You've helped me stay in the church. You've given me some tools to be able to stay. And I'm grateful for that. A lot of them came from missionaries, a lot of mission presidents. I've gotten word, I'm very humbled by this, but I've gotten word that several mission presidents have assigned my CES letter reply as required reading for their missionaries. And so I get all these friend requests and messages from missionaries I don't know everywhere, and it's really kind of fun. Uh, since I talked to Bill that first time years ago, and then subsequently talked to John DeLynn, and um, I now get more messages from people outside of the church than people inside the church. And the messages say something along the lines of, you didn't persuade me to come back to church. You didn't persuade me to reclaim my faith. But what you did demonstrate is that uh, you can be in the church and have integrity. And you've given me empathy and appreciation for my family and friends who stay. And you've given me hope that we can continue a relationship, that I, I can better understand where they're coming from. I mean, I get those messages all the time, and I count those as a huge, huge win. Uh, before I started having conversations uh, like the ones I had with Bill, um, I and I think so many members of the church, were I, I was unaware of the huge gaping hole that exists in terms of communication between people who are in and people who are out. Uh, when people leave, they're shunned. There's you know a disconnection, to use the Scientology term. I mean, that happens. It doesn't always happen, but it happens far, far, far too frequently. And it happens within families. It happens within marriages. Mixed faith marriages are something that the brethren never ever address, and people get divorced rather than accept the fact that their their spouse believes differently than they do, and. And I see that as a huge, uh, as a huge problem that I want to be part of the solution. And I think that Bill, particularly, uh, has sort of given me entree to the possibility of doing that. So I'm very grateful for that. And and so I mean, I, I I'm happy. I, I one of the reasons I also wanted to have that conversation, Bill, with you offline and not here is that if the first time we talked was right now. The next hour, hour and a half would be that the same conversation, conversation. right? Yeah, totally. Probably a little more heated because we know we're being watched and we're in yeah. public, and so we've got a, a little more of, ego, a little more walls up. Sure. Yeah, and, and 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 I didn't feel like we had to do any of that in a private conversation. And I have great respect for you. I have great respect for where I, we do. We still disagree on a number of things, uh, but uh, I think. And, and this is kind of where I want to go with all of this is I think that what we did in that private conversation was modeling what President Nelson was asking of the church in this last conference. 
I mean, that, that talk about, um, you know, at one point, you know, I'm sitting in the choir loft and you're supposed to be quiet as a church mouse. And not texting. Not what, not and not texting. Uh, especially when you've got some guy trying to get you to get the prophet to fall on his rear end. I didn't really expect you to do that. I, but I, it would have been funny if you had. I, well, there. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. Um, but uh, President Nelson, I can remember the exact quote. He said, "If someone in your ward gets a divorce, or if a teenage, or if a missionary comes home early." or a teenager doubts his testimony, he does not need your, they do not need your judgment. And audibly I went, thank you. And I had everybody around me turn and look at me like, you know, shut up. You're not supposed to say anything. Uh, but uh, that was, I wanted to stand up and cheer because that's a message that does not uh, get emphasized nearly enough. And I think it really is, it, uh, uh, has the potential to be the greatest legacy that uh, President Nelson leaves behind. If we can really become a church that functions that way, that operates without judgment uh, and, and with acceptance of people who are not walking the covenant path the, the way we expect them to, or the way that, you know, that's ide ideal, the ideal way of doing it. Um, we can, they do not need our judgment, and we can continue to love them. We can continue to communicate with them. We can continue to build bridges with them. Yeah. I'm going to say two things, Arf, and I know we're going long on this part of the show, but the conversation that I had with you, again, for an hour, hour and a half, I thought was both sides were very vulnerable. You, you, you credited me, but I'm crediting you back. You were very forthright with me, open about your thoughts on all these things. I didn't feel at all. There was, I didn't feel maybe in the very first 10 seconds of the phone call, but once we got past that, it felt like two friends just having a good conversation, working out some differences and letting each other know kind of where they stand on things. And I deeply appreciate your, you always have this demeanor, by the way. The second thing I want to say is that in the midst of, cause you mentioned Patrick Mason earlier, I have gone after Mason Givens, those, those, nuanced believing voices who are soft and kind on the inside, but on the edge. And I've, my point has always been to those folks that they refuse to talk to the critical voice and hash out these long conversations where folks who are really in crisis and having doubts and trying to figure out what, how to make sense of all of this, they really need to hear those kinds of conversations modeled because regardless of what position you hold or I hold and no matter how defensive we are of those positions, the people who are hurting deserve a conversation to take place so that they have, they have that to work with so that they can make decisions about how they're going to navigate their faith crisis or rebuild their faith. And as I've attacked Mason and Givens and those folks for not being willing to have those conversations, Patrick Mason went on to Mormon stories and he thought John was the one who had attacked him. And he said, John, you've said, that I won't go on and have these conversations with folks. And John said, I've never said that. And what Patrick misremembered was that it was me. And what I'm going to say is that what happened this week kind of says that's real, that when you go into a space as a believer to talk to the critic and to make it a safe space where all these conversations can be worked out in long form, real time, 
there comes a lot of risk in doing that. And as much as you and I have bumped into each other in the past, I've always stood by the fact that Jim Bennett seems like he's the only person who actually will do that on a whim's notice. And kudos to you for being that guy. Well, that's very kind of you. I, 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 um, I think Patrick's uh, long form discussion with John DeLynn was very productive. Yeah. I don't know Patrick. Well, I'm acquainted with him, uh, because I, I know his parents very well because they're in my ward. His father has since passed away, but he was my home teacher for years and years Hmm. and was every person's dream of what a home teacher should be showed tremendous interest in my kids in a very kind and loving way, spoke at my children's baptism. Uh, and I can still remember his talk on the Holy Ghost where he talked about getting his head caught in a fence. That's a whole other story. But but uh, just genuine, marvelous people. And his mother, Leanne Mason, is still in, in, a, in my ward and, and is uh, a favorite person of everybody in my family. My, my children all... Like, well, let's go visit Leanne Mason. We need to talk to Leanne Mason. I need, I need a little Leanne Mason. And so really my interactions with Patrick have been sort of ancillary to my interactions with his parents. Uh, but I have always found him to be genuine. And, and I watched his Mormon stories interview. And I thought the things he had to say, particularly about polygamy, where he talked about lipstick on a pig and all kinds of things. I mean, we're very, very frank, uh, that, that, uh, I, I I really believe Patrick's heart is very much in the right Same. Amen. So Patrick wants to have those conversations. And yet the, the lashback of this past week was enough that he stepped away from that arena. Okay. Bill and Jim, and I, Maven, yeah. first off, Maven, go ahead and say something. Then we're going to yeah. talk about Patrick Mason, but I got to actually give the backup for those who don't know what happened this past week so that they'll be able to understand your conversation going forward. Maven, what do you have to say? So I just wanted to say that the discussion that we're having tonight is specifically around the ability to have conversations like this for our show to have Jim on, um, for Mormon stories to have Patrick on, et cetera. And I, I guess I'm getting a little bit frustrated that uh, while there's a lot of compliments for Jim going on in our chat now, there's also a lot of vitriol. And I'm just I'm going to say right now. I, it's, it's not okay. If you have a point to make, that's okay. But if you want to ad hominem Jim Bennett for being here because he's not where you want him to be, um, I, I, you're just going to get blocked. So, the, and I just, I just really want you to think about the conversation. And I think you're, you're you guys aren't paying attention because I feel like it should already started like be figured out what the purpose of the episode today is. And I don't know if you're just not listening or just not thinking about it, but like, this is, this is exactly what we're talking about here. And I know I, we, I, I guess some of us love it when it's the believers who are the ones who uh, won't let things like this happen. But when you're over here on our side and you're doing the exact same thing, you have no higher ground here. And so I just want to say that I'm just getting a little bit frustrated with our audience. I love you guys. You guys are great. You've been very respectful to Jim in the past and to other guests. And I just really want to see, I, I, I get the frustration. I really, really do. Um, but I, I mean, even I, I was polite when I had a disagreement with Jim about something that he said on the show, I didn't rail him for it. I just listened and I just asking for our audience to do that as well. That's my piece. Go ahead. Well, RFM. I will. I just quickly, okay. I've, I've learned, I, I'm sorry, RFM. I'm not trying to step on you. Uh, okay. reading the comments is what got me into trouble on midnight Mormons. 
if I hadn't read the comments and hadn't reacted to one particular comment and reacted badly on my part, the comment actually wasn't bad, but I recognized the person making it and went and, and called her a name. So yeah, reading the comments always gets you into trouble. That's all. Yeah. And we will get to that part too, because if that hadn't happened, if you hadn't made that ill-considered comment, you wouldn't be on the show tonight. And we wouldn't have gotten the smoking gun that we're going to get to. Absolutely. <laughs> you bringing you two together. I feel like, I feel like Sinatra bringing Martin and Lewis back together. Well, well, so which one of us is Martin and which one of us is Lewis? That you you're going to have to you find out about yourself. You get to be whichever one you want. Well, obviously Jim, you're Martin picture, because you're the singer. I have a picture that I showed to Henry Iring, Henry B. Iring in the first presidency after my father passed away. It is a yearbook picture of my father and Henry B. Iring in high school. My father was Dean Martin and Henry B. Iring was doing his best Jerry Lewis and has, you know, has the whole thing. <laughs> and everything. Oh, lady. And, and he even mentioned it when he was, was speaking at my father's funeral. He says, yes, they came and showed me this picture. Let us never speak of it again. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was really good natured about it, but, yeah. but that picture is, exists. I think it's one of the featured pictures on my Facebook page. Oh, yeah. great. You know, I don't watch the uh, live chat while the show's going on because it's too distracting. But as long as Maven's brought that up, let me just go ahead and say that one of the things that I found questionable is a nice word for it about Cardin upbraiding you for what you do in your personal private life and what podcast you choose to go on and thinking that he has a place to sort of upbraid you over your decisions. It just seems like this massive boundary transgression. There's probably a simpler word for it, like overstepping your boundaries. And, and thinking that you have this position, and I think it's kind of endemic in Mormonism, at least that's my experience, that a lot of times if you're Mormon, you sort of feel like you have the ability to tell other people how to run their lives if they're in the church. And I would not want our live chat to be making the same kind of what I consider to be a mistake as Cardin was making to try and tell you what it is you need to do in your personal life. Because, my God, you're a grown, you're a grown man. I almost you're put a word in the ass, middle. You? But you're a total grown man. And you get to make your own decisions. Hey, can I just add one other thing, which is if I go back in time to those early interviews on Mormon stories where Richard Bushman sat down with John DeLynn and Terrell Givens sat down with John DeLynn and Brant Gardner, and those conversations were foundational to me being able to work things out. And so creating spaces where folks like Jim Bennett or Patrick Mason can have conversations with uh intelligent, informed voices on the critical side as well, I think are uh, they're a huge service and a huge benefit to people who are in the midst of the angst of that dark night of the soul. Well, they certainly were for me, and particularly your Mormon Discussions episodes, Bill, where you seem to talk nonstop for a period of time about the dark night of the soul and Fowler's stages of faith. Yeah. And I could not hear enough of that because I was going through it myself and I'm going, yeah. this is what it is. This isn't just me. This is a fact of life. This is what everybody goes through who has been, well, in a religion. It doesn't have to be a religion, but usually it is. A devout yeah. believer in a religion who then starts questioning and you're wondering your whole world is falling down and is this ever going to stop or am I going to be cast into oblivion as well? But no, this yeah. is just sort of like a thing that you have to go through until it gets better. I hope everybody has a midlife crisis. <laughs> is it a midlife crisis? It is a, it is a sort of thing, yeah. I mean, there's am the I first half of life. Yeah, really. I think I'm having an end-of-life crisis. Yeah. Yeah. 
But, but, once again, so glad you're here. Uh, so glad we took care of things in the live chat. And they, they rarely pay attention to what we're doing on the screen, I found, when I go yeah. back and review. They're, they're, just, playing, they're just playing games with each other. They have, yeah, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. They just show up to have fun, and I think that's great. But we got another clip here from the show, and I'm going to have from Jim about this because Cardin made what I think is the most controversial statement in the <laughs> history of Mormon, Midnight Mormon. What? I don't know that anybody else noticed this statement other than you. If well, it's the statement I'm thinking it is. Well, then I'm glad I watched it because it deserved to be noticed. All right. Here we go. So this, this is, is 45, 15 to 46. Yep. Um, put it up on the screen. Let me get rid of that. And here we are. You know, um, one of the big, I, I, the reason why RFM lost the debate is because <laughs> he single-handedly exposed uh, the false narrative that secularism, and especially the LGBTQ lobby right now, is the kind alternative to a cruel, strict, and dogmatic Mormon faith. Because when asked, you know, do you have any responsibility to these people once you tear down their faith and you deconstruct their faith and you do this whole postmodernist attack on their faith? When asked that by Sean McCrane, he said, no, I should be able to criticize as I see fit without any of the repercussions on me because these people are adults. And he kind of made that whole they're in their lane. I'm in my lane. Free street speech libertarian argument. Hey, Bill, we can actually cut it here if you want. Yep. And it was 46 minute mark. Yep. Yeah. We're running a little bit uh, long here and he's already said the controversial part right out of the shoot there. Well, there's, the reason I, I RFM lost the debate, too. he's taking that as a given. Now, Jim, it's funny. I'm looking at you on the, the – <laughs> you're frozen here, but you're down here. Okay, never mind. He didn't give you a chance to respond to that. That wasn't the question. It was simply a very long statement on his part that I lost the debate. So I wanted to give you the chance. And Cardin didn't. I wanted to give you the chance to respond to the statement that RFM lost the debate. Oh, I was at the debate. Uh, live. I, I was physically there. I think that's the first time I'd, I'd, I'd met you in person. I think uh, you sat right behind me. I, I, yeah, my wife was there with me. Uh, I had a cousin that was there with me. Uh, and this is going to sound a little too diplomatic, but I'll, I'll get a little more pointed as we go. Uh, the idea of anyone winning and losing debates is an entirely subjective decision. Uh, I found in my time in politics that the person who wins the debate is the person uh, who can answer the question and and not make a fool of himself. And so Trump, for instance, I think, won debates even though what he had to say was absolute nonsense. It has nothing to do with content. It has to do with how well you present yourself. It has to do with how flustered. The minute you get flustered, the minute you get angry, you lose the debate, you know, that kind of thing in, in my mind. So it, it's such a subjective um, determination one way or the other. And, and I, debates to a large degree are so pointless because nobody changes their mind. Everything is just reinforced. So that said... I don't think there is any way anybody in that room would have said you lost that debate. <laughs> well, and, and part of that was it was your crowd. It was not their crowd. And they had alienated the crowd when they walked in with those stupid bulletproof vests. <laughs> you know, I came in late and I, I, and I saw him and I saw the vests and I leaned over to the guy next to me and like, what, 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 are, what are they wearing? What is that? 
And it was just like they're wearing bulletproof vests. You know, I mean, so the, these on guys, the outside, on the outside, on the outside, <laughs> it was just ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And, and so they set the tone right at the outset. We're, we're not afraid to be absolutely ridiculous. And so, uh, you know, so from the outset, they, they, they started with two strikes against. Uh, and as the debate went on, again, I, I don't need to evaluate the arguments. I don't even remember specifically the arguments. I, I only remember the times when people said things that were really, really stupid. Like when Kwaku talked about the idea of John D's folk magic being something that all Mormons believe in. And I was like, what? Who, 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 what, what, what now? What are we talking about? You know, and I just thought that's ridiculous. And I don't remember you ever saying anything patently ridiculous. I can't remember you saying anything brilliant either. I don't remember any of the content. I do remember you being funny. And in fact, at one point, you saying, well, the difference between you and me is I'm really funny. <laughs> and that got a huge laugh. And it worked. It was exactly right. You got everybody in the room on your side. Uh, but the, the, the third strike against them in that debate is uh, I, I've taken from Dan McClellan's constant use of the word univocality when he talks about the Bible, that the Bible is not univocal. There is not one, one consistent voice. Uh, you were one consistent voice because you were one consistent person. And they were three, sometimes at odds with each other voices, uh, saying disparate things. Cardin would sort of try to say something, and then Brad would try to clean up after him. And then Quaku would wander off into the wilderness. And it just became this sort of, it was unfocused. Uh, you didn't really, they did not have any univocality at all. They did not have a univocal message. And so if they didn't already look ridiculous with the bulletproof vests, they were just hard to follow and scattered. And, and so I, I can't imagine anybody walking out of that and saying, well, my goodness, <laughs> RFM certainly lost that debate. <laughs> I, I, I just don't see that as being anybody's reaction, including people, I think, who would have been more sympathetic to Cardin and Brad and Quaku's arguments. Uh, the arguments, that's the problem with the base. The argument itself, the content of the argument, ultimately doesn't matter. It's who do you like? Uh, who makes you feel comfortable? Who are you willing to listen to? And they went out of their way to be off-putting and strange and scattered in their presentation. Well, Jim, as much as I'm enjoying this segment of the podcast tonight... <laughs> they probably won't play this clip right they they probably won't play this one okay uh, no the good thing that we we already know they're not going to watch it that's right <laughs> that's right they'll know i came on and and they'll decide that i'm i'm a terrible person because i walked out of the last podcast i did with them so i thought you just went to walk your dog after your I wife did. told you to get off the I, podcast. Well, I mean, that was really kind of, she, she had told me to get off the podcast 10 minutes before I did. She mm -hmm. came in and she's like, why are you talking to these people? Why are you doing this? <laughs> and the reason why is because he was talking so loud, the neighbors at the end of the block right, were Right, calling. right, I was. And, and then so I stayed on and then she comes in and she goes, get off. What are you doing? Get off. And I just went, okay. Sorry, guys. I got to go. Uh, and he you did. Know, and I did, and and I have I have not, nor do I intend to, I have not watched the podcast 
past the point of my departure. Yeah. So I, I just don't really have any interest in that. And, and I, I texted Cardin, I texted Brad. I haven't talked to Kwaku in any way. Uh, but after the, after the podcast and we went back and forth on a few things, uh, I don't, I don't have any animus towards any of those guys. Uh, and, uh, I think it would be easier for me to get back on the podcast than it would be for me to make peace with Bill real, which we have done. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have any sort of, th there isn't that kind of an issue, uh, but I don't think I should go back on their podcast until they recognize the reasons why I stepped away from it. Because yeah. I, I think they fundamentally misunderstood why it was so important not to create a moral equivalence with Desnat. Right. And I think we'll mm. talk about that in this podcast. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so this was um, actually the second time that you, on the you were on the show. But let's go to this clip now. This is really the clip that caused it all. And this is right toward the end of the first time you were on um, this is, Midnight Mormons by the this way, past this, weekend. I own this. This is when I step in it completely unnecessarily. This was a huge mistake on my part. Okay. I didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was well, uh, well put, actually. But this is 108.15 to 108.50. So this is 35 seconds, and this is what starts it all when Guatemax makes a um a live chat what do you call that a super chat yeah well so apparently if you pay 10 bucks to Cardin, uh he'll read your chat on the air and she had paid 10 bucks to do that yeah lots of people do that yeah. or in other words read the super chats on the air in order to, to encourage more of them to be made so um do we have that bill did you get that yep. time Kurt? there it is yep 108.15 Thank you anyway, so much. Check this out. Oh, crap. One last super chat. I was going to ask one last question to Jim. But Guatemax says if there's going to be a music video for Javelins, then it has to be heavy power metal. Yes. If you give us the music to... Guatemax, that guy's a Desnat loon bat. Well, it's so actually you know, a girl. That's my, my most, well, whoever she is, I've seen her all over Twitter, and I'm not a fan. Oh, snap. Well, watch out. You might just be in the some meme tomorrow that, but see, uh, <laughs> i'm not loving at all i'm a hard evil wicked terrible person well so here's the deal before we go um uh, uh, should we uh, progmo jim that's kind of that's kind of a loving donald there we Trump. go that's, that's good bill yeah there's nothing else after that yeah so this is really fascinating to me that you call guatemax a desnat loon bag which no i did not i called her a loon bat Oh, it it's wasn't a loon totally bag? Different. Not bag, bat. It's a word I use that isn't a word. A, a loon well, bag. Well, both of them are words separately, so why can't they be used together? I don't know why that bothers me or why it matters, but she's like, he called me a loon bag. I'm like, I didn't call you a bag. I called you a bat. Hey, can you play that again from that timestamp, Bill? Uh, I want to yes. hear this again. You yeah, want give me two bat or bag? I thought you called her a loon bag. Uh, so did she. Not that's, that. That's uh, the next there's, one, Bill. There's the, yep, right here. I had thought you called her a bag. So did she. But this is when you thought it was a guy. Ooh, hold no, on. We're going to have to. It's an advertisement. I just got to let it play. So here we go. Okay. Um, anyway, check this out. Oh, crap. One last super chat. I was going to ask one last question to Jim. But Guatemax says if there's going to be a music video for Javelins, 
then it has to be heavy power metal. Yes. If you give us the music to... Watermax, that guy's a Desnat loon bat. Well, it's actually a girl. <laughs> okay, now I do see it. Well, I do that. see it. It's bat. <laughs> Not that it matters. Both of them are obnoxious. And, and, and the worst part about it is that Guatemax, for all of my frustrations with her, which still remain, because I, I am familiar with her work on, on Twitter. It's absolutely reprehensible. It's absolutely Desnat, awful, white supremacist garbage. Uh, but this comment was she was being very kind. She was referencing this video that I'd made 15 years ago for Award Roadshow and Javelin saying, hey, Man. you want to add some fun music to it? I want to add some animation to it. And yes. so she's, she's saying something nice to me, and what do I do? I call her a loon bat bag. You know, it's... <laughs> a loon so bat I, bag? Are you changing just, the... Wait. I added it now. I added a loon bag. bat bag. So, you know, but... So that was a huge mistake. There was no reason for me to do that. I shouldn't have done that, but that launched what came what came after it is interesting because i did not know up until this point when you're able to identify somebody's handle guatemax as being desnat affiliated i did not know that you had spent a considerable amount of time on twitter fighting with the desnat loon bags i have since taken to blocking i block far too readily i get a lot of people hey jim better block me and like yeah i did because when I used to argue with Desnat, it's like arguing with a swarm of bees. Uh, it's like you say something and then 10 people say something just hideous again. And you try to respond to the 10 people and then 10 other people, I mean, they just gang up on you like a swarm of bees. I think it's, it's changed now because Desnat has been so uh, decimated as a formal Hashtag Desnat exposed revealed who a lot of these people were, uh, doxed them, and they all lost. Robert Boylan, uh, who Robert Boylan, yeah, yeah, just uh, Rob, I, by I, the way, for the record, Jim and Bill, Robert Boylan, you are a Desnat loon bag. <laughs> Go ahead, Is he a bag or a bat? He's a bag, yeah, okay. Um, but uh, you know, all of the, I mean, the founder of Desnat lost his job. The guy up in Alaska who was the assistant attorney general lost his right. job. All these people lost their job. And so very few people now actually use the hashtag. Uh, and, and people I know. Like, they don't use it, but they continue to do the same but, thing. But, and that's but, exactly uh, what Guatemax is doing, isn't it? And that's exactly – and Guatemax went on to say, oh, I'm not Desnet anymore. It's uh, just all of my followers are. All my followers are. Everybody who listens to me is – and and the 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 hateful rap that I made about Jim Bennett was made by a Desnat uh, and references Desnat and references blood atoning people with muskets, which is a huge Desnat theme. Uh, but I'm not Desnat, and it's like, look, I mean that this just doesn't that just doesn't fly. Uh, of course you are. You still believe everything. The fact that you're not willing to use the hashtag anymore because you don't want to lose your job. Uh, doesn't doesn't uh, take doesn't defang the evil, and I don't use that word lightly, but the evil that is at the core of Desnat and and the cancer and the rot that Desnat represents at the heart of the church. Okay, so now we've got to get into part two of the story, which is Saturday of the weekend before last. You're on 
Midnight Mormons. I have to cycle through all the different podcasts in my head. Not Mormon Stories, not Mormonism Live. It's Midnight Mormons. You're on there Saturday night. You make this comment about Guatemax being a Desnat loon bat. Yes. And you think it's a guy. Yeah. Harden immediately corrects you because, of course, he's friends with this Desnat loon bat. Right. And for whatever reason, I'm not saying anything, but you're obviously friends and you know him personally. He accurately predicts that you're going to have a video. He calls it a meme. I call it a video made about you within the next 24 hours. Uh, Guatemax apparently took that as a challenge. Yep. So she put she put one together and then she put it up and then Cardin gets you and Guatemax herself to come on the show together on yep. Sunday evening. Yep. And that's where all heck broke loose because my impression of it is that Jim held forth in a very vociferous and eloquent manner about the evils of Desnat and Jim showed that he was not going to put up with any of the apologetic nonsense that all of the, no, that Brad and that Cardin were trying to sell in order to justify or mitigate what it was that Desnat did and specifically Guatemax. And it was actually Kwaku who I think was the voice of reason. I, again, I wanted to stand up and applaud every time Kwaku spoke. He didn't speak enough, maybe because I was screaming. Actually, I didn't scream. I went back and watched myself and went, you know what? I was. I wanted to scream, but I didn't quite get there. And I'm kind of proud of myself for being able to, to rein it in a little bit. You were projecting. (laughs) (laughs) And projecting very well, but actually, yeah, Kwaku was sitting there saying, no, these Desnat people are not cool. I've been on the short end of their, their tirades and their, their nasty comments. And he's gotten it a lot, lot worse than I have. I mean, they took a poll should Desna, should Kwaku go back to a mental institution or should he go back to Africa? Uh, you know, they do N-word towers. Uh, you know, somebody will post an N and then they'll spell the word out. Uh, oh, yeah. They don't do that. They, a lot of the reasons they don't do these things anymore is not because they don't want to. It's because the Twitter has cracked down on them. They're well aware that these guys are a hate group. Uh, they're Even under Elon Musk, they can't get away with that kind of crap anymore. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that 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 Kwaku encountered, and and you know, so he was just very clear, guys. These are not good folks. These are not folks that uh, are decent people. These yeah, are we should not be seeking. We should not be seeking for ways to justify what it is they're doing. Right. So now we get to Sunday night, which would have been a week ago. Sunday. Sunday was four thirty, so it must have been four twenty three. April 23rd, I think, would have been the date of that Sunday. And you come back on the show. They've got Guatemax on there. And I understand that the video that she had put up in short order about you had been taken down off of Twitter, whether she yeah. took it down or someone else did. Yeah, I I don't know if Twitter asked her to take it down, yeah. uh, but she took it down. Uh, and, and, and so to her credit, to some degree, she took it down, but I, I suspect she was gently nudged in that direction. Uh, okay. so, but I don't know the, the video is no longer there and I'm grateful for that. All right. So here's what I want to do, Bill. Yeah. If you would go pl- past this next clip and go to the trial of Guatemax, because that's what they titled midnight Mormons titled. 
their second episode. First mm-hmm. one was Trial of Jim Bennett. Second one was Trial of Guatemax. Livestream 4, 23, April 23rd, 2023. They never quite play the entire video meme that she created about you. But they first off play about 30 seconds of it, and then they stop. And the first they, 30 I seconds mean, is me sticking my foot in it. Uh, I mean, they, they just play that clip of me calling her a loon bat. Oh, so well, that, what I tried that, to that's do- the beginning. That's the setup. And, and, you know, and if it had stopped there, I wouldn't really be upset. Right. And what it is, is that I've just tried to take the two places where they played as much of that video that um, Guatemax made and put it up here in the timestamp. So we have as much of that as we can. And the first one's at 1635 to 1658. Do you see that down there, Bill? Mm-hmm. Look at my face. What? just that oh yeah now did you create that did you create that yourself i created the ai avatar i didn't give it a scowl like that so oh okay animated me uh but the the ai of me looking like donald sutherland getting a mugshot i created and she took it and ran with it a healthy donald sutherland though oh okay yeah healthy (laughs) hey you know my favorite quote from donald sutherland what the trick to acting is to tell the truth and once you can fake that, you've got it made. There you go. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yep. Yes, yes. This is sexist. Now you're gonna mess with the nest. So you better be ready for the sting for when the Deseret presses. I'm so sick of progressives. Babylon worships sex obsessives. Blind to the eye of the wisdom alive in the oh, there he is. of the church of the blessing. Say you, what's purpose of life? Atone for what blood and put down the Bowie knife. You believe it's all chance in the sky to eat, drink, and get married and die. In- Okay, so they're calling a big fat Okay, and you can stop it right there, Bill. So there's the first part. And now, of course, it's Cardin who interrupts it. But now if we can go to the next clip where they pick it up again. Very quickly, because I I think reasonable people who have never spent a minute with Desnat wouldn't recognize that already they have said things that are beyond the pale. Okay, go for that. What are they? Because the rap is, they're, they're talking about me. Uh, representing progressives. Um, it's my face that's flying around with blindfolds and whatever. Uh, so I'm the progressive. And progressives tell us, hey, you're a racist. You're a sexist. Put down the Bowie knife. Don't blood atone people. I mean, I mean, th- th- that's what they're saying is, is they're, they're making fun of progressives who are upset when they use imagery threatening to slit the throats of apostates. Which and progressive have, Mormons. And progressive Mormons. Uh, you know, I get lumped in now. I, I, I'm just as evil as I'm, as as you guys, apparently. Uh, Robert Bolin, who is uh, done work with Fair Mormon, who's done collaboration with things with Interpreter. It's Boylan, part of that, right? Robert Boylan? Yeah, he was part of that whole Richard Nygren thing. Um, put out an image, you know, a few years ago where he had Brigham Young holding a gun, and it was a threat towards progressive Mormons. So it's not just the apostates. They're going after – they're going after – at least to some degree, believing active members of the Church of Jesus Christ, the church that they're a part of. That's right. And and so Brigham Young, bless his heart, uh, was prone to hyperbole on far too many occasions. And at one point gave a speech about, I would, I would yeah, I want to take my boat. I have a Bowie knife here and I want to go slit the throats of anybody who, who leaves this church. Now, I, I don't want to excuse that. That was inexcusable. Uh, in a 19th century context, I think you can get away with that. 
and and people can say, oh yeah, that's just Brother Brigham. He's sort of full of beans, uh, in a way that you can't when you when you quote it unironically in 2023 mm. in the 21st century. I, I, I don't want to give Brigham Young a pass there because I think he was absolutely wrong to have done that back then. But but so so just quickly in that video, it just quickly makes a quick reference to that as saying, hey, all you stupid progressives, you keep telling us to put down our Bowie knives. You keep telling us not to blood atone people. Uh, so so the, 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 the indictment is that we who are concerned about that kind of vicious imagery are, are weenies and aren't really true disciples of Christ. Well, you're not a true disciple of Brigham Young. We'd be willing. Yeah. Well, and, and plus their whole thing. And, and, and this is in the video too. And I think it'll probably be in the clip you're going to show next. Their big phrase is Brigham Young did nothing wrong. Right. Where, where does that phrase come from? That phrase is a direct lift from Hitler did nothing wrong. That's exactly what it comes from. Brigham Young was a Nazi. Uh, no, I don't think Brigham Young was a Nazi. Because he was a little bit early guys, for that. Yeah. These guys are appropriating Nazi imagery, applying it to Brigham Young, and using that to represent the church. And that's why I say over and over again, uh, they do so much more damage to the church than either one of you guys could ever hope to do. That We're anybody, number two, but we try harder, Jim. Uh, well, well... Uh, if I go online and I've never heard anything about the church and I bump into one of you guys, uh, I will apply a discount to anything you say. Oh, these guys don't like the church. I got to take what they're saying with a grain of salt. But the Desnats, it's we are the core of the church. We are the true believers. And so you should take what we have to say as gospel. And what we have to say is we want to go out and murder every member of the church we don't agree with. Which one of those positions does more damage to the reputation of the church? Because the call is coming from inside the house when it's Desnat. I mean, these are the guys who, are, they are actively trying to represent the church and they are representing it in the most reprehensible, worst way possible. I think to the New Testament passage where Jesus is hailed as the son of God by a man possessed by devils and Jesus is furious and Jesus casts out the devils and says, get thee behind me, Satan, right after they say, what have we to do with ye, son of God? Uh, because when, when the message is attached to such a reprehensible messenger, it damages the message in a way that, that no critic could ever hope to do. And Desnat is burning down the church from the inside. Wow. And just to note, when Desnat in this rap song, by the way, the the whoever the rapper is, I don't know how they did it, but whoever the rapper is, that was he does rap pretty good. And the music well. I thought was pretty catchy. Um, other than the lyrics themselves, I actually enjoyed listening to it. Um, but when you have credit or when you have Desnat making it absurd that people would be so weak as to call for them to put down the Bowie knife and to stop with the blood atonement talk. It also says that their message is the opposite, which is they completely advocate such. Right. We're gonna we're gonna pick up the Bowie knife. Yep, and we're gonna tone the blood. So yeah. let's go to the second part of this clip if we can now and see if we can get Jim even more riled up. There you go. All right, twenty-four minutes and twenty-nine seconds. Here it is. 
We knife, you believe it's all chance in the sky to eat, drink, and get married and die. Inversion, y'all been tricked by the serpent in the garden with the kick into the bricks. Meanwhile, brick by brick, we be building up the body of the Lord in the mix. Repent, rebel, you made a wrong turn, you need to turn around. Yo, another foe, ammo with the fetish that you're chained to. I serve God, you chose mammon and the famine of the rod. BYDNW, I hit you with the truth and now it's funny that it troubles you. BYDNW, if you would ever follow through, then you would know it too. Listen, we believe that you can repent and you can come back into the fold and try it again. This time you can build from within and dig deep the roots to keep calm in the wind. There we go. And there yeah. she is. I don't know who that is. Okay, so yeah. there we had certainly some iconography with uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell and a pistol pointed at the camera. Pistol pointed at the camera right after my face has come across as the representative of the people they're singing about. And so I say, yeah, they're pointing a pistol right at me. No, 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 no. The picture was at the screen. The picture wasn't really at you. It's yeah, like, that's, that's Guys, bullshit. guys, I'm not an idiot. Yeah. Uh, that rap is aimed at me, so the gun is aimed at me. And this is where I got most angry uh, because then, because then they launched into now, Jim, here's the problem. What you don't understand is, uh, uh, that the kids these days, <laughs> that's what they do. Violent. I mean, Quentin Tarantino, Quentin yes. Tarantino is my generation, not their generation, but that's another story altogether. Uh, but, uh, and Brad, even Jim, Jim, can I finish? And I was like, okay, finish. And they go, have you ever heard of image flip? I don't care. I don't, I mean, basically the argument was I'm too old to recognize that a gun pointed in my face is no big deal. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I said, I don't care what image flip is. Oh, well, that's an image you can pull off of image flip in five seconds. It's like, so what? It's a gun pointed metaphorically at my face and you want to kill me. You are threatening to kill me. And you're doing so in the name of the Lord. You're doing so in the name of the church as a representative of the church that could not be more reprehensible than to do that. And, and, and that's when I went, okay, these guys, and they kept trying to say, oh, look now. And, and then Cardin jumped in he's like, now Guatemax, you know, you did call him an anti-mo and you know, Jim's not an anti-mo. You shouldn't have called him an anti-mo. And Jim, you shouldn't worry about, you know, this, this fun little gun meme. You just don't understand memes. That was their whole way. They downplayed. And also when they showed that Quentin Tarantino video of John DeLynn getting metaphorically hit in the head with a baseball bat, uh, you know, it, and that's just a meme kids these days. We meme. it's just what we do. We meme. it's like, you're using the worst possible violent imagery and, and you're, and you're treating me like I'm stupid or like I'm senile. When I say that's not an appropriate thing to do in the name of Jesus Christ. It's also that kids these days are shooting up schools and kids these days yeah. are uh, walking into LGBT nightclubs and shooting like Mormon kids these days are walking into LGBTQ nightclubs. It's the people who create the song or Guatemax putting out, you know, her tweets sure those weenies don't have you know the gall to go do something but what they're doing is they're sending a message to folks and among those folks there's seven percent of people who have some sort of mental instability and 
all it takes is somebody to think they're on the right side of the message and doing whatever the voices in their head tell them to do. And you're setting up an entirely safe space where somebody commits an atrocious violent act on others and uh, feels in their mind that they're justified. And that's exactly what Desnat is doing for these folks. That's exactly right. I wish I'd had the presence of mind to raise the fact that this isn't just imagery with the young kids. We are in an, a, an epidemic of, of mass shootings in the United States. Yeah. Why would you want to use any image, the image that feeds into that explicitly yeah. feeds into that? Yeah. Amen. Okay. Now we get to what is really going to be the heart of tonight's show, because this is groundbreaking. And I was shocked when I actually saw it, but to set the stage for this. And I didn't go- see it. You brought it to my attention later, but I didn't see it at the time. Yeah. It, did, it didn't seem like you did because if you had, I thought you would have stopped what you were saying and shifted, but you continued, you were on a roll at that point. <laughs> but uh, once you hear it, you can't not see something. it, right? Right. No, this has this goes back to uh, 2021 August with the musket speech by Elder Holland at BYU. And I think that the apologetic for that, by the way, by the way, I bring it up again, Jim, that the Midnight Mormons did an episode after that defending Elder Holland and they titled it Elder Holland Did Nothing Wrong. It's so strange, these, this group, because it's, it's like they're Desnat adjacent. And yeah. I don't know that they are affiliated or are card-carrying members of Desnat. I don't think Quaku is, certainly. I, I know just... Quaku isn't. I don't think Brad or Carden is either. I, I think uh, they're dancing with the devil, and they don't realize, and they're going to get burned. Yeah, they're useful idiots. Yeah. On this, so, though, I, yeah. I, I still have great affection for them as human beings. But yeah. when it comes to Desnat... Uh, there, there's just no excuse for the platform they're giving them. Right. And so I think the apologetic for Elder Holland is to take it to an extreme and set up a straw man and say that Elder Holland was not telling people to pick up their guns and go out and shoot gay people. And he wasn't. I, no, of course he wasn't. That's why right. he's a straw man, right? And I set forward what my position of it was the following November at the debate with the Midnight Mormons. So that's November, August, September, October. That's just three months later. And I say what it is that I felt about that. And it's not so much that he intended it to be a call to arms, but that it could and might likely be taken that way by certain segments of the LDS Church, segments of which he has to know exist. Do we have that part, Bill, from the debate? Yep. Okay, here we go. I think that one of the things I'd want to cover, and which we do cover on a number of episodes, has to do with social issues. And it has to do with, uh, right now today, the reluctance of the church to accept on an equal footing in its membership gay people, lesbian people, trans people, and any other kinds of people. I'm sorry if I'm forgetting some of the, uh, the, uh, the different categories, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Every time the church seems to take one step forward, then something happens when Elder Holland gets up and starts talking about muskets. And everybody goes, what? Especially from Elder Holland. I've heard from a number of seasoned members of the church boomers how disappointed they were with what was said. 
not only because of what was said, but because of who said it. They had an idea that their hopes were pinned on Elder Holland to be a moderating influence. And then he gets up at BYU in August of this year, 2021, for those listening in the future. And he starts talking about musket fire. And I know that you did an episode defending him on that. The deal is this. No, he wasn't saying go out and get your muskets and start shooting gay people. We understand that. The deal is, is that in an environment where in the church we have got extremely fringe, right, desnat people who are very willing to take up arms against the sea of homosexuals and by opposing in them, forgive me, Shakespeare, using that kind of language is not cautious. It is not prudent. And a good, wise leader recognizes the fact that there are people who will hear that message and may go out and do things that the leader would never come out and want anybody to do. You've got to be careful about that. So there we go. Thank you, Bill. So there I am three months after the speech saying what it is I thought about it, my concern with it. And the thing that shocked me is that on Sunday, April 23rd, we've got a card-carrying member of Desnat who admits it. That yes, she was looking at this statement by Elder Holland regarding muskets as a justification for her continued promotion and production of violent imagery. So do we have that part? The, um, the, the background here is that Cardin, I think, has just been talking or will be talking about how it's very common for the youth of today to use violent graphic imagery. And it really doesn't mean anything. And you, without missing a beat, Jim, take him to task on that and start comparing that to the LDS church. And does the LDS church use violent imagery to preach the gospel? And then there's Guatemax there at the bottom. Listen for what it is she says. It's one word in the middle of this. Can't hear it. Yeah, me either. I'm just trying to figure out why that is. Hmm. Give me a second here. Let's do this. Let's refresh it and see what happens. Okay. This will be a three-minute clip. So it should have lots of context. We're going to have to... We still don't have any sound. So this will be from the, for those of you watching at home, it's from the 34, is it 3447 mark? Let me see here. So, um, 34, I'll go ahead, 3447 mark. Go ahead. Please. What's making was, this one different? I thought I saw, it's hard to see because it's kind of small. Um, but if you go and you right click on the tab, I thought I saw like a mute button on there, or maybe it was just when you hit it on the thing. But if you right click, yeah, unmute tab. The oh, whole tab perfect. is Thank muted. Yeah, perfect. Let me uh, let me go back here to thirty. What would we do without Maven? I know. I must have. Frodo wouldn't that have gotten very far without Sam. Okay, let me mute this for a second. Get to the thirty-four forty-seven. Perfect. Okay, here we go. Correct their behavior, like we talked about in the. Can you increase the volume? Recent, uh, live stream it's we just did. It, it becomes very easy for us if we start. Getting into this us versus them thinking to then be like, you know what? 
I'm willing to condemn these people and push them away and say they're bad and horrible and evil people, which ultimately harms our ability to even interact in a way that will get us all on the same page, right? Can, can I stop are, it there just quickly? You, you had a long can, time. Yep. Oh, I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll say this here then, but, but since this went out, uh, that argument has been presented to me by people in the church to say things like, look, Jim, you talk about how inspired you were by President Nelson's talk. And here you are not willing to build bridges with Desnet. You're not willing to reach out. You're doing us versus them with Desnet. So you are an absolute hypocrite because you're not willing to, to you know, sup at the table with Desnet. And, and you know, on its face, that seems like a nice, gentle argument. Uh, but... <laughs> But it's not because finding common ground with evil, uh, you know, even President Nelson at one point said in his talk, I'm not talking about peace at any price. You don't uh, negotiate with terrorists. You don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, these people are beyond the pale. These people, Desnat is short for Deseret Nation. In other words, they are calling for a theocracy in which non-believers will be executed. Uh, and finding common ground with that, giving ground to that, uh, is is not acceptable in my mind, and it is not at all what President Nelson was talking about. No, no. So okay. anyway, I, I hope I said that as clearly last week, but we'll see if I did. Time can I finish, Jim? Jim had a long time. Sure, can I finish? finish? Okay, then let. Sure, don't, please don't. Interrupt. I wanted to kick him in the face when he said that. Can I finish? Um, Here's the thing that I'm trying to get across with this, Jim. We need to make sure that we're not throwing out condemnation and making snap judgments of people based around whatever's happening, because it's kind of similar to what happened. The comment that ended up lumping you in with the uh, thing that I can't say about the what would have happened in the temple. That's, yeah. I think, a, kind of a bit of a similar thing to what's going on here with you and your perception of Guatemax. She's not out here with Bowie knives. She's not out here with like the the gun thing with the meme. That's are are you familiar with image flip, Jim? Do you know what that is? I don't care what it is. I it's it's a meme making platform that's used by younger people all the time. It's a, a what? I, I think this is a generation well, gap thing saying, to a certain no, degree. No, it's not. Let, can can I finish? Can I finish, Jim? Can I finish, or are you going to just keep on cutting me off? I didn't cut well, you I'll off. Keep on cutting you off if you keep on saying oh. things like this to me in order to be able to pick a fight i'm not no. trying to pick a fight i'm trying to explain my no, point do you want to know i don't care what mean flip is i care that somebody's pointing a gun in my face okay well, well hold on jim jim i think in brad's defense here what he's trying to say is a lot of these things that may be difficult for you to understand that you're checking out at face value like a picture of Orrin porter rockwell holding a stylized pistol is a lot like the people that started gasping when Quentin Tarantino made Kill Bill and the whole entire floor on Kill Bill was covered with blood and there was people putting nunchucks with mace in the air. It's kind of a stylized violence that he was famous for and actually become part of mainstream culture to such a degree that people would make memes of it. And then to, to, to get angry at that might unfortunately have a kickback on you rejecting an aspect of commonly understood aspects of, of pop culture and i think it's fair to say that that's not we're not talking about pop culture we're talking about the gospel of jesus christ uh, when was the last time you saw a quentin tarantino video posted in general conference when was the last time you saw quentin tarantino's violence used 
to represent the principles of the gospel and defend the church. Muskets. People recognize that a Quentin Tarantino video. You, st- you should stop it there. Creating a sort of nothing I say beyond this uh, mitigates what she just said. Yeah. yeah, let's play that again because in the context, Cardin has basically presented as legitimate or is trying to legitimize using violent imagery to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what Desnat says they're doing because that gives it the best possible spin for them, I guess. And you come back and say, well, does the church ever do this in this situation, General Conference? Does the church use this violent Tarantino imagery yeah. over yeah. here? And then Guadamax leans into her microphone and says, muskets. Can you play that again, Bill? Of commonly understood aspects of, of pop culture. And I think it's fair to say that that's not we're not what, talking about pop culture. We're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, when but, was the last time you saw a Quentin Tarantino video posted in general conference? When was the last time you saw Quentin Tarantino's violence used to represent the principles of the gospel and defend the church? Muskets. Boom. Muskets. And I thought this was the smoking gun of all smoking guns. The smoking the, musket of all smoking muskets. She admits that she drew the connection that that's the approval in the message being formally given in the church is Elder Holland standing up at BYU and using the phrase muskets. And of course they would. Look, I'm not a rocket scientist, but my dad was. And it doesn't take that much intelligence to know that if you've got a Desnet group over here that thrives in all of this uh, violent imagery, to have an apostle say something like that even though the apostle didn't mean it to be taken that way, that this Desnet group is going to take it and use it that way. And so now Elder Holland has inadvertently made himself the patron saint of Desnet. Yeah. Which, which, which again was not Elder Holland's intent. No, I don't uh, believe it was. I, I don't, I mean, the church does not really allow a vehicle, uh, for, um, for apostles to correct themselves or to admit error. Uh, but, uh, Everything I've heard behind the scenes is that Elder Holland recognizes that this is probably not something you should have done. Can I push back on that, Jim? Sure. Back in the summer of 2017, Elder Holland got called out for repeating a fabricated miracle story about missionaries. If you remember that, I know it's been six years now. The missionary meets his brother while out on a mission. He has to get past some vicious dogs that are pets of the brother and at the the, the Satan's helpers clubhouse. Remember? Yep. Yep. The story was told over a period of almost a decade by multiple leaders, including elder Holland and members of the 70. And when word got out, namely because of radio free Mormon and bill real beginning to talk behind the scenes and starting to make mention publicly that this story doesn't add up. Um, elder hall, at least at the same time that happened, whether, whether the facts that they portrayed or not, it's at the time that we brought it up. Elder Holland had to retract the story, and there was a giant article in the Deseret News yes. and the Salt Lake Tribune that the story was a false faith-promoting story. No, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, that the story wasn't accurate, that the family had asked him not to share it because all the facts weren't true, and they had to retract the story. And in, in other words, RF, and what you're saying is that there certainly has been moments – in stories that had le- that were less problematic to causing harm to people, 
where the church had no problem retracting it and admitting that they shouldn't have said it. Yeah, and I won't say, and I won't go so far as to say no problem. I'm sure it irked them, but then again, they felt this needed to be done, so they did do an article on it. They did do a retraction with the very same apostle. So I only say that in order to underscore the fact that yeah, they do have avenues available to them, but apparently they've chosen not to take them as of yet. Well, Maven, you're showing up. Hi, Maven. Yeah, I'm showing up, and I just want to show a video. It's only six seconds, uh, real quick, but. Uh, um, this was talking about uh, perceived violence or towards the church. I think maybe there was, uh, I think this was about the vandalism on a church building, but I may be wrong about it. But here's, here's the video clip I want to share. One crazy guy with a gun. You can't overlook rhetoric. You literally can't overlook rhetoric. I just feel like Harden's singing kind of a different tune when it's uh, with Guatemax, when it's uh, someone with Desnat. I, I feel like he's kind of flipping here, 180. And remember too, when that uh, when in St. George somebody uh, lit one of the chapels on fire. Again, off hours, nobody's in there, but they burned down a chapel, and and they came out and said that the ex Mormons wouldn't condemn the act. We wouldn't say anything. We we were we were okay with it. And here is where actual violence against human beings is being uh, advocated, and these guys don't want to quite go there, do they? Well, and these are the guys who wore bulletproof vests to your debate because they're they're essentially accusing you of being loose cannons who could start shooting muskets at them. Or that we might be encouraging our followers to carry out violence by not speaking down on it enough. Right. Maven, that was a great clip. I didn't know that you'd found that. But yeah, that was definitely Cardin going from the other side, talking about people that are critics of the church and upbraiding them for using rhetoric that could lead to violence. I think we all have to be careful about using rhetoric that could lead to violence. But again, the point has to be reinforced and has to be made that it's much more damaging when the call is coming from inside the house. If Mm. if people outside the church are threatening violence, it's much less damaging to the church than people inside the church representing the church or claiming to represent the church uh, doing the same thing. Okay, so we've almost got, actually, um, I just think that was just so fantastic that because you made that statement, we got Guatemax on the record citing muskets as her battle cry and justification for using violent imagery. So it's not just hypothetical anymore it is a reality and we have the proof now before we get to patrick mason because i'm going to want you to talk just a little bit more about him i think we've got to play this last clip from Cardin about muskets because it cracks me up every time i see it i couldn't believe he said it the first time i still can't is this from the time i was on this is from the time oh i'm not sure it's 47 11 to 47 20 you might still have been on then Okay. Yeah, he's there. Uh, there I am looking really happy to be there. Yeah. You ready? So this we'll is just play. nine seconds. Of a flop. And we have to be really careful with the muskets analogy. Like, unless you're really going for like the uh, the overture of 1812 with muskets or something super funny like that. We got to be careful with that because whether we like it or not. There you go, Bill. That word. The overture of 1812 with muskets. Meanwhile, yes. they're using Brigham Young from the mid-1800s anyway. 
Oh, golly. Actually, it's funnier than that. I mean, the 1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky is, a very, is very famous for using a certain thing that goes boom, but it's not muskets. It's not muskets. It's a cannon. Crazy guy with a gun. You can't overlook rhetoric. You literally can't overlook rhetoric. <laughs> if you let these guys talk long enough. <laughs> no, it's absolutely amazing. I, I listened to that and I thought, oh my gosh. Has he never listened to the 1812 Overture either? Well, didn't he say in the debate, didn't he talk about uh, something about Benjamin Franklin defending yeah. the Redcoats when the, it was the John Boston Adams? Massacre. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, and that's, the, I mean, so what? I mean, that's. Yeah. Anybody can misspeak. I, I, I can't. Everybody else can, but I can't. I've made a career out of it. Yeah. So have I. Okay, so that was the funny part. And now, if you if you want to talk a little bit about Patrick Mason, let me set it up here. You were already starting to get into it before. Most of our audience, very well informed, knows about it. Patrick Mason had launched a weekly newsy kind of podcast about Mormonism with John DeLynn and Jana Reese. And Patrick Mason had wanted to use this as an example of how to model civil discourse with those that you don't believe in common with. And this is also following President Nelson's comments as well. I mean, this is what we do when we're adults and hopefully mature in our society, is we can talk with other people that we disagree with and not feel threatened or feel like we have to threaten them. But it went for two episodes and then... Patrick Mason pulled out and he left a lengthy reason just this past Monday on May Day about why he was pulling out. And the way I read it, it was primarily because of pushback he was getting from certain unnamed Orthodox members that did not like it. The, his quote was, they felt that every time I turned toward John DeLynn, I was turning away from them. So it struck me that because there are certain people in the church who don't want civil discourse to occur between members of the church and non-members in violation of what President Nelson said, that Patrick Mason pulled out of this enterprise in violation of what President Nelson said. I'm sure he had very good reasons for it, which he's not going to tell us about. But now, Bill and Jim, what did you think about that whole thing? Well, if you talk to the Cardins of the world, they're going to tell you, they're going to paint you the same picture of John DeLynn that I have painted of Desnat. You can't have a conversation with Korahor. You can't have a conversation with the devil. Um, you know, legitimizing John DeLynn to any degree is somehow a betrayal of the Lord. Uh, I, I, I do not see it that way at all because I firmly believe, and I, and I feel like President Nelson's talk was the first, well, maybe not the first, but certainly the best recognition that the brethren are starting to get this too. And that is, we don't have any choice but to engage with people who are critical of the church. We don't have any choice whatsoever. Uh, we can't ignore them. We can't shun them. We can't shame them. John DeLynn isn't trying to kill anybody. John DeLynn isn't aiming a gun at anybody's face. John DeLynn is demanding that somebody in the church defend the church. 
and answer these hard questions and, and be held accountable for these hard questions. And, and so I just look at it and go, we, we don't have any choice but to do that. We may have had a choice when I was a missionary in the late 1980s, and the only way you could find out about Fanny Alger or Adam God is in a weird pamphlet that's in a brown paper bag that slipped under the door by the pastor when they find out you're meeting with the Mormon missionaries. But today, they hop on Google, they type in the word Mormon, and it's right there. It comes up on the first page. Something problematic will come up on the first page. And unless we engage in good faith, unless we say, look, okay, here you are. You're right. You, you, you are entirely justified to be concerned about some of these things. Let's talk about them. Let's work through them. The only reason I still have my faith today is that when I went through my version of a faith crisis that was precipitated by the book, The Godmakers, when I was 18 years old, I had a father who was patient, was kind and respectful, and also knowledgeable enough that we could have long, pointed, thorny conversations about all of these things. And I never once felt like I shouldn't be asking these questions, or I'm in trouble for asking these questions, or any of that. I had a resource that so many members of this church do not have, and it's a resource that we need to start to provide. And this kind of a podcast with, with John DeLynn and Patrick Mason talking to each other and Jana Reese. I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny because Jana's just sort of, this is all about John and Patrick. Jana Reese is a voice of reason who has provided some solid data about the future of the church that I know the brethren are looking at. Uh, I know, uh, I mean, the next Mormons made the rounds through the church office building because how could it not? It's got, it's just, it's got data in it. It doesn't have invective. It doesn't have, doesn't really even have an argument. It's, this is where the church is. This is where the members of the church are. Uh, what you do with that information is up to you, but this is what it looks like. I mean, Jana Reese is such a valuable resource for the church, and she's still, as far as I can tell, a member of the church. She is not, she's not out to dismantle or destroy the church. So, so when I heard about this, um, this podcast, I was thrilled because I have great respect for all three of the people. And yes, that includes John DeLynn. I have great respect for John DeLynn. And if that makes me an evil, that doesn't mean that I agree with John DeLynn. It means that it's that, that I'm not worried that he's going to point a gun in my face and we can agree disagreeably. Oh, we can disagree agreeably. And, and so, so it breaks my heart that anybody would see talking to John DeLynn as turning their back on them. Uh, my talking to John DeLynn uh, had nothing to do with me turning my back on the church. It had to do with me saying, I'm not afraid of you, John DeLynn. I'm not afraid of the hard questions you're going to ask. Let's talk about them like adults and see where it goes. And we, and, and we don't seem to be able to do that. And, and yeah. it breaks my heart. There, we've run into this a ton of times in this country around lots of things, but there's this idea of just shutting down one side of the conversation. And the, the reality is I think that you, you defeat bad ideas. You, you put down bad arguments by allowing a more full conversation. 
And, and so the, the secret to bad ideas is more ideas and, and, and good ideas. And to allow people who disagree to sit and have lengthy conversations where they can bounce questions off each other, where the line of logic or the line of logic or, or the line of the argument can be kind of walked out to its full extent. It's the only, it's, it really is the, I'm not going to say the only way, but it really is a fruitful way that people can, or at least the listeners, right? Cause often if you and me are having a conversation, Jim, you're not really changing my mind. I'm not changing yours, but there's thousands of people that listen to our conversation over 14 hours and minds were changed. Not everybody, but minds were changed one way or the other. People have a right to hear discourse. People have a right to hear um, both sides. And, and I always find it strange. Again, I don't mean to pick on the believing side, but I always find it strange that for the most part, the critics are willing to sit in those kinds of conversations and the believers either want to and get too much pushback and don't, or they don't feel like they can. And I, I think it's time. I think we're 2023. <clears throat> The church is making numerous changes. We're on the beginning of an ongoing restoration. Um, the church is making numerous choices, uh, changes, I should say. It seems like now's a great time to sit and have conversations where ideas can be bantered about and we can begin to let go of stuff that doesn't work and doesn't hold up anymore and begin to wrap our arms around things that uh, are better arguments. And it seems as though the church is already doing that. Yeah. And that, I think that's exactly right. And, and it's like what I said about the debate. To some degree, the ideas are secondary. The modeling of decent behavior, uh, I think, has a greater impact. Uh, the, the fact that you and I can talk respectfully matters more than what either one of us is actually saying. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. So, Jim, let me put you in Patrick's hypothetical place that you've started a podcast with John DeLynn and Jana Reese to discuss civilly something that as uh, apparently benign as news stories about Mormonism. And you do it on a weekly podcast. You've been at it for two weeks and you started getting pushback from other members, possibly leaders. I don't want to say that's true because I don't want to speculate. But obviously, Patrick got enough pushback that he withdrew that much we know if you're in that position, Jim, and you start getting pushback and people saying, look, I feel like every time you turn toward John Delenn, you're turning away from me. What is your response? And what do you do? Uh, you know, I actually, that's not a hypothetical, uh, because after I had my 14 hour conversation with Bill all those years ago, I got a call from a guy in my stake and I'll be very vague because I don't want to out him. Uh, who, but he, he said, look, I'm a closet I'm a closet doubter. I haven't told anybody, uh, but I'm a closet doubter. And I listened to that entire show. And Jim, uh, I'm very worried for you. I think you may be in serious trouble. Uh, you said some things that I think the brethren are not going to like. Uh, they don't like being point that you don't, they don't like it when people point out that they are not infallible. Uh, you said things in favor of LGBTQ rights that uh, are, are clearly they're not going to like. And I just am saying, watch your back, dude. You know, and so I thought about it for a minute and I went, well, geez, what should I do about this? And then I decided 
uh, I'm going to call Chris Monson. I don't mind saying his name because I think he comes out very well in the story. And, Chris, and Monson, Chris Monson is a son of President uh, Monson? As far as I know, there is no relation to Thomas Monson. Okay, I've who asked, is Chris Monson? Chris Monson wa, uh, was my bishop when I served as his second counselor. So I've served in a bishop bishopric with Chris Monson. He's a man for whom I have a great deal of respect and who I consider a very dear friend. And at this time, uh, he was no longer bishop. I was no longer in the bishopric. Uh, and he was a counselor in the state presidency. And I said, well, geez, Chris Monson is going to be able to tell me if I'm in trouble. And he'll, he'll give me the straight dope. And I called him up, and uh, one friend talking to another friend. And again, I, this, this may be a resource many people don't have. So a lot of people do not have that kind of relationship with their bishop or with their stake presidency. And so, so that becomes a challenge, but, but I, I had this resource and I wanted to make use of it. And I said, look, Chris, this is what I did. I went on this podcast. This is why I did it. Uh, I felt like I wanted to defend the church, but also wanted to model how to have conversations with people outside the church. And here's what I said. And I even said these things about LGBTQ issues and I pointed out that the brethren make mistakes and and are not infallible and all these sorts of things. And we had a long conversation and Chris just kind of gently laughed. And he said, Jim, you were defending the church. The fact that you weren't doing it perfectly uh, or that you may not have done it the way I would have done it uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, deny the fact that you were trying to be a peacemaker, trying to be a bridge builder. And he, and he said, we, we don't come after people who defend the church. We come after people who go on the attack against the church. He says, I don't think you have anything to worry about, but if I hear anything, uh, if anybody comes and complains to me or I hear anything from any, anywhere else, I will give you a call the moment I do. And I didn't hear anything from him. And then uh, months later, I was in a Temple Recommend interview with him. And, and he said, hey, whatever happened with you in that podcast? <laughs> And I said, well, what do you mean? Did you ever hear anything? And he said, no, no, never heard anything. Hmm. You know, so, so it never, it never raised attention. So what would I do is, is, uh, on this occasion, what I did was turn to the people who would feel like I was turning my backs on them by talking to John DeLynn. Uh, I would, you know, if, if, uh, if John DeLynn were to come to me and say, Hey, you want to replace Patrick Mason? Uh, I think that would actually kind of be lovely, uh, you know, but, uh, but, uh, I wouldn't do it without having a conversation with my Bishop first. I would go to my Bishop and say, Bishop, here's what I'm going to do. And here's why I'm going to do it. And here's who I'm going to be talking to. And, uh, you know, and I'll see where that conversation goes so far. Those kinds of conversations seem to go well. Uh, but, but they may not have gone well for Patrick and that makes, you know, it's a leadership roulette sort of thing. And that makes me very sad for Patrick that he didn't seem to be able to get that kind of, uh, empathy from, from whoever it was he was talking to. Right now, Bill, did you want to say anything or are you ready to go to questions and calls? Hey, Bill, oh. I think you're doing your best Marcel okay. Marceau impression that. there. Yeah, yeah. You're I so am, old, RFM. I'll just, I'll just add here, Jim, I'm, I'm deeply grateful. You did 14 hours with me. You did another 14 hours with John DeLynn. You seem like the guy in this arena who 
is willing to have these kinds of conversations and either you're lucky and you're not getting the pushback that Patrick has gotten. And again, it's a different project and he got the chance to talk to Dylan and he's been on our podcast years ago. Um, but you seem to put yourself in a arena where you have conversations with critics and talk out the issues. And I wish these kinds of conversations were happening every, every week or every month, because I think they're so important to, um, the people who are struggling with trying to figure out how to make sense of the problematic issues in the church. And it's not, and again, I, it's not just the issues in the church. It's how do I deal? Okay. You've already left the church and I'm married to you. What do I do? How do we talk to each other? Yeah. How do we relate to each other? Those yeah. are the kinds of discussions nobody is having, at least not publicly. Yeah, totally. My so wife, my wife Alan and Katie Alan, Mount, Katie I guess. Yeah. So anyway, at least nobody inside the church. That's your point, Jim. Well, yeah, but there's no, there's no public official outlet for it. Right. There, there's no safe space to talk about it. There's no, there's no model for it. Right. Why uh, is, why is that? So the critic seems more than willing to have the conversation. Why, why is it you think that the believing side feels pressure or lots of folks on that side don't want to touch those conversations with a 10 foot pole. I, I don't think it's anything nefarious. I don't think it's a conspiracy or that they're being silenced or anything else. Sure. Uh, sticking yourself out in the arena and confronting difficult questions, particularly when you may not have the kind of academic background that Patrick Mason has, uh, or Dan McClellan has, for instance, or, I mean, th there are people who have the kind of confidence to be able to walk into that arena and know that they're not going to make a fool of themselves. Uh, but somebody who hasn't spent a lot of time investigating the church in terms of, you know, digging through polygamy or, or anything else, uh, and they wander into a conversation with Bill Real, I think so many rank-and-file members are just scared to death. Uh, they're scared to death of blowing it. They're scared to death. And, and I think they'd be scared to death uh, in any kind of a conversation like that. Uh, in, in politics, I see this in politics. You know, I've spent a lot of time in politics and a lot of people don't want to run for office because they get put on the spot and they make fools out of themselves or feel like they make fools out of themselves. It's a difficult, it's, it's a difficult thing to do publicly. So I think the reason this doesn't happen publicly is that I don't think there are a lot of people who are as brain damaged as I am who kind of enjoy this, who enjoy the scrap, who enjoy the engagement. Um, and I think one of the main reasons it doesn't happen privately is that they just don't know how to do it. They haven't seen it modeled. They don't really understand it. And, and you know, when I'm going up through primary and I'm being promised do you guys have any idea who, um, oh, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Dang it. Broderick. Bro Carlfred Broderick was his name. Carlfred Broderick wrote a book called uh, My Parents Married on a Dare. He was a psychologist at the University of Southern California where I attended. Uh, he was a faithful member of the church. He was a stake president in the Los Angeles stake. Uh, he was a, a big advocate for sex education and got pushback from the brethren for that. Uh, anyway, and a fascinating, funny guy, Johnny Carson used to have him on his show. 
to talk about uh, sociology and marriage. He was a marriage counselor too. And uh, he would tell funny stories, just a colorful, wonderful, delightful man since passed away. And he wrote an essay um, called The Uses of Adversity that years later was published by Deseret Book, separate from the book it had been taken from. And it tells the story of Carlford Broderick, stake president, going to a standards night. You guys remember standards night? I remember that they were had by the younger people in the ward. Right. They were had by younger people. It was a night where uh, there was some skit or some presentation that was just sort of to reinforce gospel standards. And uh, in this occasion, the whole thing was built uh, around the idea of the Wizard of Oz. And the temple was the Emerald City. And if you followed the Yellow Brick Road and you arrived at the Emerald City and got married in the temple, then all your dreams would come true. You had a happy ending. Everybody sings somewhere over the rainbow and life is great. Well, that certainly happened for me twice. I'm sure it did. <laughs> but, uh, but he said that afterwards, the young woman's leader turned to President Broderick and said, President Broderick, do you have anything to add? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, she's never forgiven me since. And the whole thing he said was, uh, I do not want anybody here to believe that if you do everything right and you keep all the commandments and you get married in the temple and you go on a mission, that bad things won't happen to you or that your spouse won't be unfaithful to you or that your children won't leave the church and break your hearts, that you won't lose your jobs, that all these terrible things won't happen. Uh, that is not the case. And, and if we're telling you that's the case, we're in big trouble. And this was a sentence that I sort of carved on my heart after my daughter was injured. You know, my daughter was in a skiing accident and was left paralyzed from the waist down. And it was just absolutely heartbreaking to me. And, and I remember, I, I, I kept reading this. Crawford Broderick said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not protection against pain. It is resource in the event of pain. And when pain comes, as it inevitably will, be grateful that you have this resource to help you deal with your pain. Mm -hmm. And, and I have just, I've embraced that. And that has meant so much to me over the years. And, and instead we frame this idea that if you live according to the covenant path and, and the covenant path, I, I always hear Dr. Broderick echoes of the yellow brick road, covenant path and the yellow brick road. You live on the covenant path and your life is just going to be swell. And then all of a sudden your spouse comes to you and says, I don't believe anymore. Then your gay son comes to you and says, I'm not going on a mission. And in fact, I'm not going to church. And in fact, maybe I'm going to marry this man I've been dating without telling you. And you look at yourself and you say, but, but I'm on the covenant path, but I've done everything right. What, why is this happening to me? And we've never, ever, ever sat and had conversations with when this pain comes Here's how you use the gospel of Jesus Christ as your resource to deal with that pain. That's what the church should be. That's the value of the church, the power of the community. When my, when my daughter was injured, my ward swarmed on us, remodeled our house, made it handicap accessible, remodeled her bedroom to do that, remodeled her my other daughter's bedroom so she wouldn't feel left out, gave us more lasagna than we could eat in a lifetime, you know, all of this kind of stuff. This is the church at its best. The church can and should 
be sort of stepping up to help people deal with this. And yet when people have faith crises, uh, you know, I, I went through another faith crisis that I've, I'm, I'm talking too long here, but in 2015, when the, when the policy of exclusion came out, I, I knew, I knew instantly that it was wrong. And it was really the first time in my life where I was sort of confronted with the reality that the church was do doing something that was 100% wrong and was 100% harming people. And I wrestled with whether or not I could stay in the church. And there's a long st story about that. Uh, but when I would publicly say this, I would say it on my blog. I didn't have the kind of profile I seem to have now, but I'd say it on my blog or I'd say it to, on Facebook to my limited number of friends. So many people, the first reaction was that leave. What are you doing here, Jim? Get out of the church. We don't want you here. You got a problem with this? You got a problem with the brethren? You can't get, get lost, leave. If that is our first reaction, when people express any degree of doubt, I'm a sixth generation member of the church, great grandson of presidents of the church, a lifelong member. I can, you know, I can check off all of the boxes you want me to check off. And the first time I express any degree of discomfort with the church, all you can tell me is leave, you know, and I, there's something wrong with that. We need to fix that. So, so I, I don't think it's a nefarious conspiracy. I don't think people are being silenced. I think people just don't have the tools. We don't know what to do. We're too afraid of being vulnerable. We're too afraid of saying, hey, you know what? Maybe if you're on the covenant path, terrible things might still happen to you and you might still lose your faith. You know, and we don't have any kind of way to deal with that. We've got no place for people to talk about that. And so people shut down and people sort of go hibernate and people go away. And the church shrinks as a result, whether it's by people being kicked out or whether it's by people who just shut down and say, the church can't, doesn't have anything for me here. Uh, I'm just going to quietly fade into the woodwork and not worry about it. I want to ask you one question before we go to phone calls. And I want to frame this in a way that um, I can get to the heart of the question without um, having you put up walls because I know that like you've experienced human growth since you created the response to the CES letter. I know that you are grateful for all the opportunities it's brought you to be able to be an advocate for a nuanced Mormonism and to help people stay. So if we go back in time, your approach to the CES letter and the way you wrote it, and it maybe even just the, the effort to tackle it in the first place, if I could bring you to this moment and you've had all the same opportunities, you're in the same position, You've, you're doing all the things, you've had all the growth that you've had because of it. Would you still, if you could avoid writing it and still be here, would you, if you could go back in time, would you still have done that, wrote a response to the CES letter? Or would anything have been different about the way you wrote that response? Or maybe would you have not wrote, written it at all? Again, if everything was the same here right now. Uh, I would have written it. I would have written, written it. I would have been more kind. Ironically, I think my first version of it is kinder than the second version. Uh, the first version was written in response to Jeremy's first version. 
And the second version was written in response to Jeremy's revision. And in the second version, uh, I turned up the snark in a way that I deeply regret. I, I, I got really snarky in a lot of places. And one of the reasons I deeply regret it is because I've since gotten to know Jeremy Runnels. Uh, after I went on your show, Bill, uh, mm -hmm. that first time I had any one-on-one -on -one contact with Jeremy, he emailed me nastiest email you've ever seen. <laughs> He's like, Oh, Jim, you stepped in it. You really screwed up. You made a fool of yourself, blah, blah, blah. And I emailed something snarky back and we went back and forth and it was like this. And at one point I was like, you realize that nobody else is reading this, right, Jeremy? <laughs> you realize it's just me. This isn't, you're not putting on a show for anybody, you know? And finally I said, look, wouldn't this be more fun over burgers? I'm buying. And, and, uh, that completely disarmed him. And he went, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we meet for burgers? And we went and had the most delightful lunch and we talked for three hours. We could have talked for three hours more, uh, but we, we both had to go do other things. Uh, and I, and my father always used to say, it's very hard to hate somebody once you get to know them. And the fact that I've gotten to know Jeremy Runnels and appreciate Jeremy Runnels for who he is and why he wrote his CES letter, uh, means that my approach to my response would have been tonally different. I don't really, um, I, I, I reread, I, I read and reread portions of my response as people bring them to my attention, when they say, oh, oh, I really like what you said about this. And I'll go, oh, what did I say about this? And I'll go back and read it. And I am actually pleasantly surprised that for the most part, uh, I, it's still consistent with what I believe and how I feel. Uh, but the kind of snarky call outs to Jeremy uh, were inappropriate and, and I feel bad about it. And in fact, so Jeremy um, wrote it, you know, on, if you go to the CES letter website, he has a series of debunkings, you know, everybody that's taken on the CES letter, there's a picture of them. And it's like, here, I'm going to debunk Daniel Peterson here. I'm going to debunk Quaku. And he finally got around to debunking Jim Bennett. And, uh, he let me know he was doing it. And he said, so you feel free to debunk my debunking. And I'm like, okay. And so I went through his debunking initially and I was like, <sighs> I started to do a line rice spine response to his line, line, line response to my line, line, line response. To it felt like going through the fine print on a mortgage loan. <laughs> it just felt so, so reductive and just so, and I just thought if anybody, I mean, people know where I stand on this. If, if anybody's deep in the weeds like this and is, has any interest in, in this kind of minutia, uh, I, that, that's not a conversation that I really care to participate in anymore. Yeah. And so what I wrote was about three, I think about three pages of kind of a sweeping overview of, of Jeremy's debunking. And, uh, and, and it, it, it praises Jeremy for introducing the way I praised you here, Bill, for introducing me into this world of how do we deal with people who leave? Uh, because Jeremy obviously was a huge catalyst for that. And, uh, and I talk about, this is the conversation I'm now interested in having. If you want to go back and, and, uh, renegotiate, uh, the relationship of the book of Mormon to view of the Hebrews, knock yourself out. I'm happy to let Jeremy have the last word on that stuff. That's not a conversation that really interests me particularly anymore. And Jeremy absolutely to his credit 
posted that on his website. And, yeah. and he says, I consider this a piece of beautiful writing. I think you should all read it. And the, the other things, I mean, the overview of Jeremy's debunking of me is I don't represent Mormonism or chapel Mormonism is a phrase he uses. I represent Jim Bennett Mormonism. And he puts a little copy right next to it. My version of Mormonism is not the real Mormonism. It's my own weird little version of Mormonism. And uh, so, so it doesn't matter what I have to say. And I said, okay, yeah, I own up to that. You're absolutely right. My version of Mormonism is 100% unique to me, at least to some degree. I guess 100% is strong to say, because I, I certainly believe in the core tenets of the church, but the way I practice them, the way I emphasize them, the way they resonate with me is different than it is for anybody else. Uh, Jim Bennett Mormonism is unique to me, just as, um, see, you guys aren't in, in the church anymore, but Patrick Mason Mormonism is unique to him. Jana Reese Mormonism is unique to her. Every member of the church practices their faith in an intimate and personal way. And how they negotiate the relationship of that individual faith with the collective faith of all of the entire body of Christ is a constant struggle and a constant negotiation and a constant dance. But, uh, but no, absolutely. I was like, you're right. Jeremy's absolutely right. This is how I do it. And I didn't write the CES letter to offer the definitive answer on all of these questions and put them to bed. I wrote the CES letter reply to say, this is how I have looked at all of these issues and come around, come out with a testimony on the other side. Your mileage may vary. Your mileage will vary. You may not do it the way I did it. But what saved me when I read The Godmakers was not that Gilbert W. Scharfs, who wrote The Truth About the Godmakers, uh, offered the definitive, you know, ironclad Moses from Sinai answers to all these things. He just said, hey, you know what? This is how I do it. I, I'm aware of this. I know this happened. And the way I deal with it is this way. And, and it was like, okay. Gilbert W. Sharps, you seem like a sharp enough guy. If you can do this, maybe I shouldn't panic and figure out if I can do this and figure out even if it's worth doing. So, so my answer to your question is very long, but the short answer is yes, I would, I would still write the CES letter. I, I would probably have called Jeremy Runnels out of the blue, uh, being nobody. Uh, I have a cousin, actually, who's very good friends with him, who was a mutual contact. So I said, could you put me in touch with Jeremy Reynolds? I said, Jeremy, I've read your CES letter. Um, I would like to respond to it. And uh, and I'd like to talk to you while I'm doing it and tell you what I'm saying. Uh, and I think if I had done that, sort of made him a co-conspirator rather than an adversary, uh, I think the tone of that CES letter would have been very different. I don't know that the the actual content would have been. Yeah, I also think it'd be interesting if at some point a project is tackled where people on both sides of the aisle, but compassionate and kind and willing to have the dialogue, could work out these issues in a way where they allow the language that says, hey, you know what? On this area, the believers got the stronger position. And over here, the critics got the stronger position because I think it, it's always bad because it's because the public's watching. It's always battled from these two ends of the spectrum. Church is true. Church isn't true. And I think there is a place to come together and go, you know, the book of Abraham is problematic. 
the answers, you know, here's what the apologists say. You can make it work that way, but maybe that's not the most rational way to do it. The trouble is, right, is that the church needs to be right on all the truth, truth claim issues on all of them. And so it's really tough to give up any ground because just a little bit of ground to the critic might mean the church isn't what it claims to be. But I think it would be very interesting to have two sides talk well, about the issues in a way that allows the reader to sense the strength of these positions and the flaws in these arguments. I think that's what Jim Jim's dad tried to do in the book that he wrote. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's exactly. Which I have on my shelf, by the way, Jim. It was one of the foundational books when I was a Mormon that I deeply loved. And I even created an episode in Mormon Discussion Podcast about Nephi's faith development along Fowler stages of faith based on Bob Bennett's book. No, Bob Bennett was, it's really interesting. And I said this to Jeremy, uh, my father, um, my father passed away on April, April. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, my father gave a fireside in the Arlington, Virginia ward about the book of Mormon when he was dying from pancreatic cancer on the 10th of April of 2016. On the 11th of April in 2016, he suffered a massive stroke and was dead three weeks later. Um, I published my CES letter reply on April 1st of 2016. Uh, in retrospect, publishing something on April Fool's Day isn't always a good idea. <laughs> but, but my father had not yet suffered that debilitating stroke that was just a little over a week away. And he read through the CES letter. We discussed my reply to the CES letter, loved it. We discussed it at length. It was like the old days when I was discussing the God makers with him. Uh, it's one of my most precious memories of him. And it's the last thing of any length that he read in this lifetime. And Jeremy Runnels, I credit, g gave me that final beautiful connection to my father for which I, I, I can never repay him. I am so grateful that he did that. But, but, you know, I, I mean, as I listen to you, Bill, it's like, I, 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 I think, I think maybe where I'm different, where, where I have learned and grown is that you, you are very concerned about, okay, well, this argument is more important and it is more persuasive than the apologist argument, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the content of the arguments is really secondary or tertiary to me at, at this point. Mm -hmm. what, what's primary to me is the ability to communicate kindly. Uh, if, we, if we can get that down, then we can get down to the nitty gritty. But right now, we, we don't even seem to be able to, to take that first step. And, and that's the huge roadblock. We just, we're terrified that we, if we talk to Korahor, whoever Korahor is today, that, uh, that we're doing something evil and we're doing something wrong. And then suddenly Korahor is a member of your family and, and you don't have any ability to, to, to handle it. You don't have any ability to deal with it. And, and so I want to spend the rest of my days essentially modeling, how do you do it? And if you leave the church, after talking to Jim Bennett, Jim Bennett will continue to love you and support you and think you are wonderful. I've said this to all of my children. I said, my love and support for you is in no way contingent in your, in your relationship with the church. And th they know that. I, I, they know that to their core. And I'm grateful for that. And I, I think we need to have more of that. Mm, love that.
Okay, you ready for some phone calls, RFM? I am. Are you, Jim? Yeah, I guess so. My mom, my wife hasn't come up to here to tell me to walk the dog yet, so I think I'm well, okay. Well, that's good. Okay, first yeah. up in the queue is Cardinellis. He wants to ask you a question. <laughs> no, it's it's not. I, that would be funny. It wouldn't be a new thing for him, by the way. He no, has come on to our show. Delightful. I would love it if Cardin would have called in right now. Yeah. I really would. I, I have no animosity to Cardinellis. I really don't. I quite like Cardinellis. Cardinellis is a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, so, I mean, this isn't about Cardinellis being a jerk. It's yeah. about the fact that we really fundamentally <laughs> disagree about how damaging Desnat is. Yeah. Uh, number, by the way, is one open call uh, phone line, 662-667-6667. All right. So let's like make this as close to 666 as you possibly can. Well, we actually accomplished it. You yeah. see there? 666 right there. It actually, no, what we wait. did, Jim, is if you type in the six six seven six 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 seven on your phone, it spells the word Mormons. Oh, so if it? you have a problem with the mark of the beast, <laughs> it's because it spells Mormons. That's wait why. a second. Hang on a second here. Doesn't well, no matter. wonder President Nelson wants to get us away from that word. It all, it's all. Now it all comes together, huh? Look at it that. It all comes together. Yeah, but if you take the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and spell it out on your telephone dial, it becomes pie. You get a you get a weird noise at the end. And the call goes through. <laughs> All right, looks like the first caller is Raphael, maybe. So, Raphael, hey, Raphael are you there? that's the same person. For, that's the same angel who called last week, right? Maybe. Yeah, Raphael. I remember my angels. Raphael, are you there? Hello. Yep. Yep. Sorry. Yep. No, no, sorry, no, no problem. You. You're on yeah. the, you're on Mormonism Live, my yeah. friend, with Jim Bennett and uh, RFM and myself. Yeah, so from what you guys have been saying um, in the last few minutes, it's kind of, I think, led up pretty well to this. Um, but from what I understand, what Bill initially wanted with the Midnight Mormon instead of like the date was like a long-form discussion going through church truth claims. And I'm just wondering if uh, Bill and Jim would be willing to do what was originally envisioned instead of the debate with like a live audience Q and a possibly both respective side, having a partner also perhaps like comparing worldviews might be interesting too. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely open to that. Jim would be a very fair balanced interlocutor to have that kind of conversation. I, uh, yeah. Again, I certainly would I'd be happy to do that. And I think Bill and I have, have reached a sort of understanding of each other that would make that productive. Yeah. Uh, it would not be a debate. No, it would, it would just be a conversation. Be a like a long form discussion. It would be yeah. a long form discussion. It would be a conversation. Uh, and, and I, I, I want to, I mean, you've heard all how stinking long I'll talk here, but, uh, I could talk about this stuff till the cows come home. Yeah, me too. And, and, and I think Bill would be a great person to have. Sure. I don't know if it'd be nearly as fun as the spectacle of three guys walking in with, with, uh, bulletproof vests and, and the posturing and the, and the goofiness. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sure. Okay. I'll, I'll reach yeah, out to you when I, the I show's think cool. like I, I, Yeah. I, I don't have a chance to make to that, to that debate, but I think just like a live audience type forum is, is a good venue. Think, we could, uh, do, you know, we could do it something like this rather than the, the trouble with putting it in a, just a building is that a hundred people get to listen to it. Uh, doing something where you and I would sit across from each other on a computer like this and allow a live chat and allow reasonable questions to come forward, I think would be very productive. And we could easily just keep off, keep away from the conversation 
uh, comments or questions that are distracting to what we're trying to accomplish. Well, we, we, yeah, we, we've done that. We did that for 14 hours a few years ago, but we're Uh, both in a different place now too. Yeah. A little bit. Well, I think we also both kind of understand each other better than we did that. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, I'll follow I up. I want you to no do. Pressure. I want you to do this long form, fourteen hour discussion again, just so that I can watch Bill take a victory lap afterwards. That's <laughs> I, nice. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. <laughs> well, and this this is I, this is kind of a shameless plug because I've actually started my own podcast with a friend mm. of mine named Ian Wilkes, who nobody's and ever please heard. Please plug of. away. Um, we're calling it Inside Out. Ian is a working class from a working class background in Yorkshire, England. Uh, who, who at one point stuck a broom handle in the spokes of a missionary bicycle and watched the guy tumble into a hedge and uh, lived kind of a rough and tumble life, joined the church at the age of 16, became a rock-solid active member of the church, uh, served a mission with me in Scotland, which is where I met him. And he was everybody's hero. I mean, this was the guy who was just the legend who did all this stuff. And he came home, married in the temple, um, became a bishop in Scotland, moved back to Scotland and was a bishop there, moved to Canada, was called to a stake presidency and uh, called me at one point and said, hey, I want you to come up to Canada and speak to my young single adult ward. And I went, oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, he says, yeah, I'll talk to our stake presidency. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, work out logistics and we'll call you back. And I didn't hear anything from him for a couple of months. And I finally called him and said, Ian, am I still coming up and speaking? And he said, oh, uh, I don't know. I've left the church. Here, here's the stake president's number. You can call the stake president. But he left the church while he was in a stake presidency. Mm-hmm. And, and the story of his conversion is really compelling. And the story of his exit is very compelling. And after he left, found himself a total pariah, uh, was spoken of in, in wards. People would, would stand up and say, don't be like President Wilkes. He fell from a great height. Now his life's about to go off the rails. He's like, my life hasn't gone off the rails. My life, my closer to my family than I've ever been. I have more time for them than I ever have because I used to be serving in these high demand church callings. But anyway, so we're calling the podcast Inside Out. And all we're doing is having these kinds of conversations. And he still has great love and affection for the church. Uh, but, uh, you know, we would be, we, we, we were asked today by Stephen Pineker if the, we are going to have guests on our show. And so far we've had precisely two episodes. Yeah. Uh, but we are open to that too. So, so yeah, those kinds of discussions are what I'm doing in that podcast. It's what Love I'm it. trying to do here. And anyway, so here we go. Love it. I, I think it's a big deal. So I love that. Okay. looks like the next caller is, um, oh, I don't get a name on this one. So caller, what's the name? Hello? It's uh, Colby. Hi, Bill. Hi, Jim. Hi, our friend. Say the name hey, again. Colby. Colby. Gotcha. Awesome. Colby. Go ahead, Colby. You know, when RFN and, and Jim were on last, um, the last time Jim was on the show, um, I called in and, and really kind of pushed Jim on what he personally, like, I love Jim's version of Mormonism. I was just sitting here thinking Joseph Smith in the Joseph Smith history has this line, right? That he felt like Paul before King Agrippa. When I listen to Jim, I feel like King Agrippa listening to Paul. <laughs> and I'm like, man, Good Jim, time. I love your vision of the church. Um, and the biggest thing I wanted to call in and say, Jim, was that I kind of pushed you on that. And I really appreciate you stepping up and doing this podcast 
to put your money where your mouth is. Like you are such a sincere person. It's so clear that you believe what you claim to believe, like because it matches your actions. If the church was full of people like you, it would be a completely different organization. And I sincerely hope that your progressive values went out in the church. Sincerely. Even though I don't think I could ever go back. How much did my mom pay you to call and say those things? Uh, That's, I mean, that's very, no, very it, 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 Thank it's you. true. And, and it's true. And we've exchanged a few times on Reddit. I think the other thing I just wanted to thank all three before is modeling such a civil conversation. You know, last year, this month, last year, Jonathan Hyde wrote a piece in the Atlantic called why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. And it, it highlighted tribalism and it, it analogizes our society today to the Tower of Babel allegory where people, depending on the echo chambers they build up for themselves, you get to the point where you can't even speak the same language as people in your country, your state, your town, your family. And I just, I'm so grateful that we have such a good example of modeling what that doesn't look like, like what breaking down those other chambers and walls looks like tonight. So thank you so much. Thank you. Very, very kind of you. Thank you. Thanks, Colby. Oh, just a note here. Maven had some technology issues, but she said um, there was a caller maybe last week or a couple weeks ago that was named Jeff. And a lot of listeners have reached out, Jeff, wanting to offer you some support. And so, Jeff, if you're listening, uh, please get in touch with me uh, either through Facebook Messenger or you can email the podcast at Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, podcast with an S on the end at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to Maven on Facebook as well. Um, I, I don't know necessarily what that was. Maybe that was the week I wasn't here. But um, folks, if yeah, and then uh, Maven's email is the amazing Maven at gmail.com. But uh, if Jeff, if you're listening, there were a lot of folks who wanted to give you support, and Maven uh, kept track of some of that information. Would love to pass it on to you. So. Uh, hopefully, we'll hear from you. Okay, one last call, and then we'll end it for the night here. This. Um, Last one here is Andrea. Andrea, you on the line? Yes. Okay, go ahead. I am. Yep. Yes, my name is Andrea, and I'm moved by this conversation. And I first want to tell Bill that I think you're eloquent, and just keep at it. It's wonderful. Okay, so this has to do with, I I am no longer, I I was a Mormon. I was a a convert, Uh, went to institute the whole time I was a convert studied hard, learned what I believe, blah, blah, blah. I ended up dumping it. I dumped it because of how they treated women. Women, you're just not supposed to be treated that way. End of line. Okay, so my question is, how can we create the church that you're talking about? One that is not based on God. Every idea that I come up with ends up to be a gang of like-minded people. And I don't want a gang of like-minded people. I want as much diversity as we can, but we have to, how can we do that? What are the greatest obstacles? Okay, now I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. All three of you. Yeah. Thanks, Andrea. She's hitting on the same thing, which is that there needs to be safe spaces for dialogue between disagreeing opinions and that in diversity. I agree with her. Like I used to want to find people that were just like me, and now I want people who are completely different so that I can update my bad views and my bad perspectives. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish Andrea, there were a silver bullet. I, I wish we could create the kind of church where people from all walks of life 
would feel safe enough and loved enough to be able to express doubts and express faith in ways that the, they're, they're not in danger of losing their church membership. They're not in danger of, you know, any of that kind of thing. Um, uh, it's, it's the cliche, right? The, the starfish analogy, the guy walking along the beach, picking up starfish and throwing them back in the water, you know, and it's realized, well, you realize it's not going to make any difference. Look at all these starfish, the millions of starfish in the beach. And the answer is, well, yeah, well, it made a difference to this one. Uh, the only way I think we create that is we, is we do it one person at a time, one discussion at a time. You know, I, I, I am under no illusions that, uh, Moroni is going to appear to me and call me to be the president of the church and allow me to stand up in general conference and remake the church the way I want it. Uh, I, I have been called to my small part of the vineyard. And uh, in my small part of the vineyard, I want to create the kind of church you're talking about. Yeah. And hopefully that spreads to more parts of the vineyard and maybe it won't. Uh, but I, I, I don't see any other way to do it unless yeah. Moroni steps up, you know, <laughs> you listen to Moroni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it would certainly make for, uh, I would welcome your views amongst the leadership of the church, Jim. Well, very kind of you. Yeah. Thank you. RFM. So I guess that's about it for tonight. We're rapidly approaching the two and a half hour mark and every minute of it has been enjoyable. I'm sorry to drag you out that long. No, no, no. I wasn't I was saying having, that in a bad way. I was having plenty of fun. I was having more fun than anybody listening. So. I, I don't know that, but yeah. Hard maybe. to measure. Hard okay. to measure. Right, yeah. Because I think you're both off the charts, you and the people listening. Jim, well, what's, the, what, what's what? the podcast again? It's called Inside Out with Jim Bennett and Ian Wilkes. And how, where can people find that? It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're on Google Podcasts yet. It's being hosted at Buzzsprout. Uh, but if you go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and type in Inside Out and you type in my name, it'll come up. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show again. Jim, 10 days after you said you were never, ever going to come on the show again, especially not with Bill Real. Yeah. But I'm really, really grateful for that. By the way, there was a thought that crossed my mind is that Jim Bennett here actually in doing this, in reaching this rapprochement with Bill, is exercising the principles of the religion he espouses. Mm. And then I thought, well, what is Bill doing? Bill's being a great guy is what Bill's doing. That's what it is. You can be exactly. a great guy outside Mormonism, apparently, as well as inside. So inside out, we'll leave it at that. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week on Mormonism Live.